Heart of the Sunrise by Jonathan Harnish. A surreal literary musical for a new generation. I am already drugged. I was, I am, and I have always lived in my own private hyperreality. That is what all of this, these words, the disjointedness, and the following fragmentation to come, the variation, and the skewed view of time, space, self, and others, and everything, is about. My consciousness has not been able to distinguish reality from a simulation of reality. I do not live in any technologically advanced postmodern society. I do not live. I do not die. I am a walking thought. I am a collection of them. I am myself. I am you. I am everybody on the earth plane who has ever lived. I am everyone who has not, and this confuses me at times. I am not God, nor a God, nor anything, nor being of the divine. I am nothing but a recorder of collected thoughts and pieces of the world. There is no point. There is nothing. There is everything. And I am a tiny representation of a speck of hyperreality itself. That would be the best way to put it, at least for now. One might simply consider me completely insane. Hyperreality a masterpiece of fragmentation, repetition, and hallucination it is not exactly intended to be a story, rather, a sort of sphinx. To make sense of it is not necessarily the point. It is a delicately hallucinatory experience that dishevels far more fixed truths than it arrives at. Long, honest, raw brazen, shameless, and impudent. Never-ending. Writing therapy. An example of how easy does it let's get the facts straight up front to avoid any confusion later. I am a person first, a human being, just like anyone else. Maybe a little different, that's all. Years ago. I publicly disclosed my diagnoses with comorbid schizoaffective disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, personality disorder NOS, not otherwise specified, and Tourette syndrome. One might argue that I have been dealt quite a handful of cards and put through the ringer. Maybe it's just the luck of the draw, or maybe it's not luck at all. But some time ago, when I felt internally trapped and suffocated and hiding all my inner demons, as I call them while secretly writing about them, it simply grabbed hold of me. And boy did it grab hold. I had made seven suicide attempts and had over 30 hospitalizations and addiction rehabilitation stints within a decade. Then, one day, I just made a choice. It felt like the sun smacked my face, allowing my mind, my experiences, and my altered sense of reality to burn, twist, deform, and coil. I am referring to a metamorphosis that had taken place inside me. I looked into the mirror, where everything came alive. My delusions, my dreams were burying everything within reality as I experienced it. Now, I no longer saw impossibility in the mirror. My imagination ignited once again. I kept staring at my reflection. My delusions of grandeur formed a shape on their own in my reflection, in my double reality, if you will, not a multiple personality, which is one of many myths surrounding schizophrenia. Within the depths of my mind and psyche my imagination began to dream while awake. In short, 
the metamorphosis occurring inside caused me to begin my mission, exploiting all that I had kept buried inside for far too long, letting loose all my secret weariness of suffocation of and derailments from the truth, my truth. I opened up, raw, unabashed, facing perhaps my huggest fear. I went public with my mental health conditions. One morning, I awakened for the day at midnight and was unable to think clearly, concentrate, or remember much of anything. I dove into my art, my work, my life purpose of productivity, but I couldn't concentrate. Growing more and more upset with myself, I felt a very familiar stinging sense of shame and disapproval. My thoughts, my executive function deficit, were askew along with my condition. My morning writing session had gone awry, at least at first. This happens to be a part of my morning writing session. My concentration had been thrown off, and an overload of stimuli within the silence of my home office frustrated me. I took a hot shower to ground myself, which often does the trick, and then returned to writing. At this point, the original thesis or subject of my words shifted with my thoughts and that suited me just fine. Earlier I had been overcome, irritated beyond belief, mentally, physically and perhaps spiritually too, by my role of being an artist, which is commonly known to involve, for example, my latest novel Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, my masterpiece. However, the point to my sitting at my desk began to metamorphose on its own. That's one thing I love about writing and writing therapy how it helps me. It keeps things simple, and it helps my thinking become clear. Being the mainstream literary author is known to be 50% writing and 50% marketing, and it was the business aspect, the marketing, that ripped at my soul. At least that was how I felt. I felt defeated. While writing therapy is a tool I take quite seriously, perhaps I was not upset with the onslaught of internal difficulties my own goal of being the best, being on the bestseller list, that doesn't matter any longer, and that's not why I write. I write for therapy, and that is why I keep fighting my mental health condition, my mind, every single day, because I can overcome the demons, the delusion, and the distractions. Perhaps this morning my cognitive behavioral therapist would have reminded me that my mind plays tricks on me, or that we all suffer in some way from cognitive distortions. He would remind me of how cognitive distortions and living with mental illness can take its toll on interpersonal relationships. After all, I believe we are all in the same boat in many ways, and it comes down to something very cliched yet entirely true. We all have problems. But let's not kid ourselves. It's how we deal with them that make the difference. I ponder on what the difference is. In my question, I see the answer. I see my self-confident smile once again. Relationships with family and friends have faded and deteriorated in my world. But then just the opposite occurs, sometimes at the drop of a hat. I am grateful for living on a mental roller coaster and not a merry-go-round. My illnesses make me unusual, as I said, and sometimes I think we all just need to give ourselves a time out to be alone for a bit, simply to figure some things out. Usually, we can see a problem in a new way when we focus our eyes someplace new. That's what the past hour has taught me. It's good. 
good enough. Realistically, things may not be as bad as they seem. Sometimes another perspective on distressing matters can help. I see it as my task, perhaps our collective task, to be resilient even if some days we just have to be there for ourselves when we are feeling alone in the enterprise. We move on. There's no way around it. I ask myself now if I feel okay, and the smile is back. Thank goodness. One last note. I've often doubted my abilities and my perception of my reality by fearing others and feeling myself withdrawing and going inside, losing hope of coming back to myself with any peace of mind. The future, that's not where I am. I'm right here in the now. Catherine Hepburn once said, if you obey all of the rules, you miss all of the fun. I apply that to writing and writing therapy, as well. Living with mental illness. Better doesn't mean cured sometimes. I feel that I don't know what's going on or that I don't care about anything. I am confused by my feelings because I'm not able to explain how I feel, except for the emptiness, and I feel that no one is really there for me, even if they are, or that nobody understands me anymore. It feels like I have nothing to look forward to. I'm a compulsive liar, but I don't understand why I do it. I create intriguing stories about myself, to the point that I can't even tell who I really am anymore. I lie to feel better about myself. Maybe, once I realize I'm a spectacular person just the way I am, I will stick with the truth. I also try to respect people, including myself, who maybe don't deserve it. This does not reflect the other person's character but reflects mine, and I miss the mark, sometimes. Out of frustration, questioning why, it's always me who tries to be right. I feel that other people are wrong at times, but at the end of the day, respect is better than lowering myself, even the tiniest bit. I'm better than that. I just woke up from another nap, and I write down my scattered thoughts about emotional pain, while in a state of complete confusion because of the disorder currently in my life. Of all the things I've lost, I miss my mind the most, though it might, just might, return, even if only for a second. I believe I have lost the battle with my own mind, but I still carry on feeling completely alone in the enterprise, which is where I want to be. I want to be alone. It is the closest thing I can think of to pressing the pause button on life, especially in the relationships I have with other people. I am a bad person to my wife. My biggest fear has always been that eventually she will see me the way I see myself. I can't stop thinking that I'm saying goodbye to my own sanity. I believe I have lost this war, perhaps a long time ago. My mind has always been a dark place and somewhere I would not want my worst enemy to be, but despite all of these feelings, I still battle depression and man, am I tired? I want to feel like me again because, for a long time now, I have felt like someone else. The old me disappears as I fall deeper and deeper into oblivion. I need to be alone without any more external drama or chaos. I do not know how to deal with this feeling except through anger, disdain, or withdrawing completely. When I can, I try to keep up with my art because it has saved me. For my own good and the good of others around me, I believe I need to be alone but not to be lonely, 
only to find some enjoyment or interest in my free time that let me be myself. Otherwise, I serve no purpose and certainly no positive purpose. I don't think I was ever meant to be or have ever served any purpose, except to communicate through my art, mainly my writing, to share these feelings for those who cannot. I have nothing else to lose. Sometimes, I feel the stress of everything in the world trying to claw into my mind, all at once and constantly, and I need something to help push me through life. Something like writing, or maybe music, or at times, just sleeping and not participating. I have miserable feelings inside me that I can't seem to control, though sometimes it feels like I can. Continuously, I fail and I hurt people causing others anguish, wretchedness, hatred, and more. I feel that I cause the same in myself, and so I stand back. I no longer interact with people due to this bizarre conflict that I do not know how to handle. I continue to fight for my wife and stepchildren and my many pets but not for myself, because in reality, giving up is just not an option. It never has been. So far, though, I have lost this fight. I walk away from day-to-day -day life because I want peace, but day-to-day -day life, and my past, keeps following me. I try not to argue with the people in my life, and I still hope for something. I just don't know what I'm hoping for, maybe peace of mind and no more distress or conflict. If I do pull through the chaos, it will be because I had to be my own hero, once again. It has to be that way because no one else can destroy me when I destroy myself, or rather the schizophrenia destroys me. Please just save me. Fix me. I have fought this battle more than once, and I have still not won. It creeps upon me and terrifies me to pieces. That's enough for now. I am being as honest as I can possibly be. Love me, hate me, hurt me, or kill me. I will still keep going. I'm still here, but entirely confused about how to relate to other, real people. I am a mental health problem, not a person. I am schizophrenia. I am no longer a person, not anymore. I sit back and watch the world go on around me, and I am a failure. The only place where my dreams become impossibilities is in my own mind. I can't see what is actually possible even when that something is better than the hand of cards I have been dealt. The war against my own mind exists on a continuous loop and that is why I keep fighting, even if nobody is aware of it. I have been absent from the external world and lost within my broken mind. This is called depression, schizophrenia, or so many other names. I call it war. I will leave it at that for now because I know this will barely make sense to other people, though I could be wrong. I can't give up, and I won't give up. Considering I've been diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, PTSD, borderline personality disorder, Tourette syndrome, diabetes, anxiety and depression, a rare blood disease, dyslexia, and cancer, I am doing okay. I'm fine, but I'm just not happy, and I'd rather be honest than impressive. This morning I wrote on a post-it note, Dear life, you suck. I am feeling a little bit better and stronger now. Still, I am not fine. I am sad, sick, hurt, angry, mad, and disappointed. 
Still, do you know what? I don't think people understand how stressful it is to explain what's going on in your head when you don't even understand it yourself. I am not sure if I am feeling better or if I'm just used to being sick. I did go on a spending spree last night, spending a little over $10,000. My inheritance was stolen due to family conflict and inheritance, medical, and other power of attorney rights, but I'll put on a smile and move on. It will hurt, but I will survive. Sometimes, I don't feel like living. I don't want to kill myself. I just want it all to stop or go away. I want to be calm. I want to be happy. I feel tired, the kind of tired that sleep can't fix. Every so often, I hope I fall asleep and never wake up. I'm scared. I'm scared of people. I'm scared of doctors. I'm scared of disease. I'm scared of life. I'm scared of death. But most of all, I'm scared of me. All I really need is the right medication, with side effects that won't kill me or make me worse and doctors who listen and care. I need family members who won't judge me and are willing to help me with my journey, friends who try to understand. I need my bed, comfy pillows, a heating pad, blankets, a good night's rest, and above all, a fucking cure. Things change, but it doesn't mean they get better. People with depression cannot snap out of it. People with depression cannot snap out of it. My moods change frequently, and I am currently depressed. There is nothing more depressing than suffering from depression and still feeling sad. So, what's the point? Will it pass? No doubt. I forget what it's like to smile, and I mean for more than a couple hours now. I'm talking about now, not later. I forget what it's like to be a lovely or loving person, or if I ever was such a person at all. One of love, of goodness, of graciousness. I forget how it feels to truly live, much less how to live life to the fullest. I just exist. Right now, I simply exist, with my pulse and my breath and maybe some tears, if I am even able to let them roll a river down my face and flood the seas and the world with them to get them out. I try to get myself out of this mood. This life. This episode of depression. Sure, I'll return to normal. Sure. Still, I have temporarily lost the point of living a life, pretending to smile or laugh, or getting a joke every darn hour when there are people around me who only want to see me happy. Well, I am not happy, and overall I have not been happy for most of my life. If anything, I glamorize the past, and even the present, sometimes. It'll pass, but that's not the point. The point is how I feel now. The point is right now. Yes, I know it will pass. I know people love me, but I do not currently know what that should feel like. I just can't remember. I feel so lost. Gone. Yet I continue, and therefore I inspire, I'm often told. But I am still depressed. I am still in this chair, writing out this rubbish because it gets so overbearing I can't tell you. I'm not alone. I know that, too, but that feels and sounds so contrived and lackluster, uninspiring, to me right now. I pretend to be so damn nice and funny and charming for others, just for them, so I don't lose a Facebook friend or whatnot.
Nevertheless, I have zero real-life friends. I'm not sure if I ever have had any. Well, maybe, sort of, but they probably felt sorry for me. Who cares? I don't know. I am not even my own friend. This has been true for most of my life. I got into a good school, which I didn't even belong in. I live my former Hollywood life, which never did anything for me worthwhile. I exaggerate about how cool the time in my life was, way back, back in the day. Now, I can barely move. I can barely see. I've been here many times, so don't worry about me. Just send a hug, as if I'd ever feel any real hug. Virtual hugs are probably better because there is no effort involved. No feeling, and I can just barely feel. This is why I write this kind of stuff. Just keep writing, says that little voice in my head. Get it all out, all that you can. Do it now. 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 Get me out of right now. Remind me of some clever quote or cliché. Reminding me how they are just reminders over and over again of how hard it actually is, in this case for anyone, to do, let go, move on, it'll pass, it'll pass, and so forth. I pretend to live, pretending to be myself, as if that would ring true. Oh, that's just your mental illness speaking, some say. Well, then I guess I am just one full bag of happiness, and I am over it. Did I snap out of it? Of course. And again, I will get out of this depressed state, just not now, and I will do it only to see it return. I am incapable of getting but one positive thought out, so I am sorry for not pretending right now, even for just a minute. Maybe I still am pretending. I am sick, twisted, and wrong. I don't belong. Other people have it worse. I suppose I don't deserve or have the right to be depressed. I need to think about them. Poor them. Hate me. Sometimes I pretend to love the life I live. What's the point? As Faulkner said, basically, the reason to live is to get ready to stay dead a long time. Okay, thanks, Mr. Faulkner. Seriously, what is the point? Tell me about it about how we are all just here winging it, trying to get by. I am not getting by. I watch the clock and wait, and wait, and wait for tomorrow. Oh, how sad and pitiful. Get rid of this guy, this guy Jonathan. Hell, I can't even walk two feet without being right here with myself, as myself. There is no escape. I just know hope. It's that same hope that gets me and brings me back here. For now, tell me the point and I'll tell you why I am so damn me, but it doesn't mean I'm really proud of this. Make me understand you as I tried to do the same. People with depression cannot snap out of it. Until my next episode, and otherwise until next time, getting through an episode the curtain opens. I am Jonathan. I have schizophrenia. I don't want to make a big introduction. Perhaps some of you have read my work before. For me, schizophrenia is similar to what I have read. In the early material, from such turn-of-the-century psychiatrists as Cray Eppelin and Blue Willer, there seems to be plenty of subgenres or comorbidities with this condition, which I have had since I was a boy. I believe my traumatic upbringing, 
at least for me, though not my sister, who was brought up in the same environment, likely set off my illness. A series of other, seemingly ongoing traumatic events in my adult life have created complications, as my doctor would call them. I experience manifestations of other mental health conditions from autism to borderline personality disorder, and my case, for lack of a better word, involves many symptomatic days and times, which often cycle rapidly. For example, my moods can fluctuate up to 30 times per day, with concomitant autistic experiences, and muscular manifestations and malfunctions. A significant number of the comorbidities of which I suffer, not only just happen and I deal with them, but rather they create reactions to even the simplest things. I battle through daily life. I experience confusion with electronic devices, which is likely and appropriately a common symptom of schizophrenia itself. I may need to reply to an email and I forget how to, or I go to turn on my computer and I forget how to find, much less press, the power button. At the opposite end, on another day, or even another hour, I am capable of solving advanced logic and mathematical problems. While I often forget the simplest things, I have a photographic memory. Let me back up for a moment, I left off my last essay, mentioning that I would be back writing during my next episode. And I am having an episode right now. Schizophrenia might be considered an umbrella disorder, though I am not a doctor of any kind. I consider myself an unemployed artist with a botched trust fund and a life that, in terms of conventional reality, doesn't actually exist, so I create delusions, or in a way, a double self, not a multiple personality, which is one of the myths of schizophrenia. This double reality, despite all the chaotically misfiring neurons in my brain, helps me to have experiences that replace the uncomfortable truths or situations that I prefer not to have to exist, to be not myself, though loved ones have told me that there is a core, an, over-soul, that is intact throughout my schizophrenic life. My thought has drilled off slightly while I was about to write one last bit on my episode, primarily consisting of paranoid thinking that I should keep on writing through my now former episode until I could break through it. That is what I do. I archive my writing. Often, and only when I am feeling symptomatic, I go back to the categorized collected written words that I have been documenting since I was a boy so that I can see what happened through my point of view and so learn how to cope better the next time. I take my writing to my therapist, explaining what happened. I often bring up with him that my life is incredibly synchronistic with my books, which consist of a series of 36 alibis of what makes me who I am so that I can know so that I can understand and so that I can keep going and move the hell onward as I always do. I always come back. My intention for this essay was perhaps that it would be another inserted chapter in my literature, my books, my documentaries, my life, my art, and my reason. But that thought has now trailed off as well, and I had only begun what I referred to as what was not my beginning or my introduction to this piece. What I would like to do now is simple, take a 10-minute break. Time goes on, with people coming in and out of my office and interacting with me, communicating, 
My goal now is to return to my laptop and recall the five minutes after my last break. I mean my cigarette break when I wrote the initial thought that trailed off. Things change. Holy cow, things change. I am back. But I can't stop now without completing this piece, my three-act play, my opera, where I am not the conductor but feel I should be, naturally, if I did not have schizophrenia. I was the violin section. I was beating the melodic tom-tom drum. I was the full orchestra performing live, both alone and with an audience. Together, all the musical instruments communicating with each other, creating a rusty fragmentation, if you will, communicating with me, at my core. I'll take a break now, and I will recap how I got through this one, this brief setback, and the five minutes that changed everything. I know I can recall what happened. And I will. I never intentionally abandon what I am doing at any moment. Again, I always move ahead. There is at least some sun after the storm. If I can stay on track, or if not, while I still play this out live, some might be able to see the stream of thought that is my specialty, where I present a typical day living with schizophrenia. And I'll call it a good day at this point. I can't lose what I already have. If I do, I will grab something else and run with that. In summary, if I am able, for thoughts still bombard my psyche, overlapping and wild, I will, and if not, I will just move the hell on. And let this go. I should have better things to do than to examine my day-to-day -day experiences with schizophrenia. And you know what? Maybe I will. However, I can't leave anyone hanging. The show is not over yet. The ships are not down. I will simply do my best to finish on the stage, close the curtain, and become the director, the switchboard operator in my head. I have nothing to lose now. I am at war. Just not in combat. I am now in reserve. So let's get to some meat, the heart of this, and some completion. Something. Anything. It is also confusing and stressful. Stressful? Damn right. But it fuels me. It fuels everything. No matter what those five minutes involved, from overlapping tears and a hardcore crying spell, followed by recentering a crooked picture on the wall, to having a can of soda and a smoke, a cigarette smoke, mind you. Nothing more. I can laugh now. Maybe it doesn't matter. My brain chemistry changed, all on its own. I am back again. I have returned another time from within the hallways of going deep into Wonderland, and back and forth. That is something I am used to. The sun is now out, at last and at least for now. Until, well, we'll just see what comes next. Roll credits. Insert title card. The end. Fade out. Asterisk. Amendment. There is no end. I walk off stage. The seats are empty. I am back in real life. Well, sort of. The story of my life with schizophrenia continues. The curtain draws shut. Early morning time to reflect. Part 1 Dear Diary. You have become my mentor. You encourage me. You support me and appreciate my work. You are one of the few who actually get me. You make me feel good, validated, and worthwhile.
Thank you from the bottom of my heart and the depths of this maze of my mind. I would rather any day that my work is made to serve, not merely just entertain and sell, to teach is to love, to have the inherent desire to educate. I have been working with my alma mater to become involved with their art community with my impressive resume, though I am noted as being the typical down-to-earth man. I may laugh at my illness when I can. I see beauty in the subtleties of life, and have a passion, a deep passion. If I am not creating, I feel as if I may not live. My imagination on fire, my alter egos are real and they inspire all that I do, even telling me what not to do, not to hurt, maim, or inflict pain on self. The real Claudia was a woman I met for 24 hours and I wrote 1,200 pages about it with her as a mere mental concept to expand upon in my literature. A while back, I received a note from a reader who commented, Gosh, that's very interesting to read. I suppose no reader would ever have guessed. I'd bet, plus 1,200 pages of notes for the series, of which there are 30-something rough drafts of books in the series to get to and onslaughts of film, video, and art footage and files. Piles and stacks of writing, as I journal, documenting life, second by second in some way, desiring legacy, to leave a dent on this otherwise misappropriated world. To teach is to love. And I am glad to have you both as teachers of my work. I am human, a human first. And I believe that if I have an idea or a thought or an image in my mind, words, visualizations, rhythms and sounds, and otherwise entangled feelings and sensations. I hope to manifest them, making them palpable in some way. To have that go to waste is to waste something, perhaps not inside Jung's collective unconsciousness. A burning desire has ignited in me, all of my life, to elicit emotion, positive emotion. To teach, to learn, to live, to love, to pass on. Thank you for being that person. I don't want to be a professional. I want to be an artist, and I am an artist. My mind is not diseased as much as it is special, moreover universal, as is any human thought or sensation. If I feel lonely, isolated, lost, and bewildered, then others might feel love, loss, grief, or inadequacy, and if I feel explicitly sexual, or obsessive, Others do, because we are all human. I believe there is nothing original if one human senses a feeling or has an experience. To be human is to be the hacker, or a programmer, and the painter, the artist. To live, to learn, to love, to lose, and to die. For me these matters of fact exemplify the very identity of the human race. I have wanted inclusion in the human race forever, until I realize that I am included. I have been for a very long time. Perhaps I am a very old soul, so to speak. These scattered morning thoughts may indeed be fragmented and congested, or maybe not. As disordered as my schizophrenia illnesses, I create to make sense of it, my mind, and my brain. I did my art. I left my legacy and I am still here. Beyond anything else, I am grateful for what I have gained and what I have lost, physically and mindfully. I have nothing to lose, 
only more to create. For the rest of my life I will continue to do what I feel and when I feel it. It may be a sort of Zen thing, but so far it works. Today's goal is to lose the fear, all fear, and become fearlessly in love with the world within me and without. Long live the arts and long live life. Early morning time to reflect. Part 2 I am a troubled artist today. I do not know what day it is. I am extremely frustrated. Unable to ground and center myself. I feel restless. I am. I am not me. I am not myself today. I cannot recall who that person was. But I know he was here. I understand him. He will resurface again some other time, hopefully soon. I recall the first person. I know of no second person. I need the third person, the person I think I remember, to return. This must be the hyper-reality from some other day, which I wrote about for inclusion in my next novel. I recall that something I said on camera was scattered and disjointed and yet was a center point, something to ground me for further writing. No censor today and, so far, no highlights showing typos or grammar errors, and no system overload on the computer. The internet seems to be back on, online. I don't need the internet now. I need a complication. I need the morning after and to melt away, to manifest the titles for my latest work. Beginning to view these calms me and allows me to see beauty in the abstract. But I know the original images, which flicker on the screen in the morning after and also chance encounter, emptying his pockets, and melt away, the film I have not released yet. The one I am still working on, just not right now. The rough cut just finished exporting, I see. But I need to write, to set aside all film and art but for the written journal. Dear Diary, as I say, in the books, the novel I just published, Lover on the Nobody. But I just need, right now, to write, so I can feel. Not so I can move on. I will, and I will have to. All artistic projects must be on hold now, although the fire in my mind is ever-present, I brought it to a halt. I fixed in my mind, my obsession. I paused. I did the right thing. This is my medication. My early morning thoughts and ventilations that often come out in the shower. I will not run through the documentation of the yesterday that was. I do not recall yesterday. I recall right now as time continues. I allow myself to become stuck for good reason in right now. I can't move on. And I won't. That's altering time. That's moving along with it, as indefinable as time is, continuous, relatively, or moment by moment. I believe I see it right now. Moment by moment. Trapped in between the moments I think is where I should be. I once heard that, come to think of it, somewhere, a psychic or something a long time ago. My cats are dying. This is a stream of thought. This is how I cope. Issues with film and literature. Little things. But it is all on hold. Rather, they are done. I manifest what I write and the chapter names become the chapters in my hours. The 24-hour woman 240 times 10 pages. It's complex composite sketching. Manifesting words into life. I had to look it up to find what day of the week it was, 
and it is Monday. Compulsive about dates, I cannot remember anything about there ever being a Sunday, just that my cats are dying. I chain smoke five to six packs of cigarettes per day and chew two to three cans of smokeless tobacco. This was written about two, the slow semi-suicide of the mind. Now the body is coming to die. But I won't, I don't like this at all. My cats are dead from my smoke. I scared off the thought, and I can't stop smoking. I will cope when they die. It's strange. Real. Strange. The morning after is beautiful. I think that's what it is. But I couldn't tell you. Maybe writing this out a little bit helped, but I am not better. Smoke lingers in the pad, and I want drugs. I can't have any drugs. I can't have any illegal drugs, only prescribed medication for my anxiety and some other things, like schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is also a drug. It's been almost 12 years since my last hit. But I do, I crave crack. I fucking crave it just for now. In some strange self-deprecating way I want to die from it. I am just still not willing to die from some asinine knee-jerk suicide, a senseless reaction. I don't want it today. The anxiety is torture enough. I want it to pause. For life to pause. I need beauty. One hour later, I took my morning anxiety medication eight hours ago. But I woke up at 1 a.m. last night. I feel better. I feel like William Burroughs as he was in Junkie. I load a dip of tobacco onto my lower lip after my final cigarette, my last smoke until 8 a.m. so my cats won't die from it as they sit here sick with me. I feel better. We all move on. For once today in the few hours since midnight, I feel a sense of medicated bliss. And it is doctor approved. It's junk. But it's complicated. My opening line in my latest work. The one sentence of profound profanity. Anti-art. I live for art. Otherwise nothing matters. I have always sought meaning. I wanted complexity. I wanted a complicated life. And I sure got one. Oddly enough, I can be grateful for that. I am. And so, for the record, I am already drugged. I was. I am. And I have always lived in my own private hyper-reality. That is what all of this, these words, the disjointedness is. The following fragmentation to come. The variation. The skewed view of time, space, self, and others. Everything. It is what all of this about. My consciousness has not been able to distinguish reality from a simulation of reality. I do not live in any technologically advanced postmodern society. I do not live. I do not die. I am a walking thought. I am a collection of them. I am myself. I am you. I am everybody on the earth plane who has ever lived. I am everyone who has not, and this confuses me at times. I am not God, nor a God, nor anything nor being of the divine. I am nothing but a recorder of collected thoughts and pieces of the world. There is no point. There is nothing. There is everything. And I am a tiny representation of a speck of hyperreality itself. That would be the best way to put it, at least for now. One might simply consider me completely insane. The story continues, 
Gust Introduction A Wheel of Fortune Georgie Gust is a loner. He is sometimes withdrawn, and has a fairly chilly, nonchalant personality. Although he is introverted, he is extremely rational. He is wary at times of the outer world, his senses, and even his intellect, because they might all be sources of illusion. His quest for identity with a spiritual whole gives him a voracious appetite for ideologies, structures, and theories. Readings that others would find abstract and intellectual impress him as reflections of important and lively realities. As a result, he has a penchant for reflection and philosophical study. He is intrigued by difficult problems and enjoys solving them. There is no difficulty, which can discourage him from the goal he has decided to reach for himself. His depth of vision, common sense, and caution, his tendency to be a bit calculating and sometimes conservative, his stamina, and his independent mind all give him the ability to tackle difficult tasks. His faculties for concentration give him an undeniable gift for abstraction and conjecture. As a theoretician, he aims to discover what is essential and universal. Indeed, he seeks to go beyond what is relative, contingent upon circumstances, or inadequate. His budding intuition is extremely receptive to the sacred or holy. As a result, the ideal or cause he espouses will be related to the concept of universality or totality. Since his lifetime adventure is based in part on this absolute truth, it is important for him to make an effort to define its nature. What sort of universality is he striving for? What spiritual Everest in himself or outwardly is he trying to scale? In fact, he tends to like mountain climbing, because the effort it requires is a great joy for him. Alone at the peak, he can contemplate and understand everything. In pursuit of this absolute center, positive or negative, which animates him, Georgie is shrewd and persistent. Stamina and endurance are resources of which he is quite confident. His existence and organism are arranged to optimize them. Others may consider him slow, but he is really just playing it safe, because, unconsciously, he knows time is on his side. When he takes an initiative, it is after careful forethought and preparation. His great composure, his ability to resist and overcome obstacles and wickedness, and his foresight give him a great potential to accomplish total self-control. However, he must be aware of one pitfall, excess. He tends to be a bit too rigid and intolerant. In intellectual pursuits, he can tend to be dogmatic, hermetic, or conformist. Some people criticize his obsession with labeling things. A creature of duty, naturally sober and relatively self-disciplined, sometimes a little too demanding of himself, George Gust might commit himself to a productive lifestyle as readily as to a stoic philosophy. The path to liberty mapped by a respect for order is not the easiest to follow. Georgie's introverted personality gives him an attitude of reserve. He appreciates solitude and does not always enjoy sharing his feelings. He avoids superficial human contact as much as possible. Indeed, he sometimes feels uncomfortable at long, drawn-out social occasions and activities, 
and his interest in others is aroused only when they discuss subjects of special concern to him, such as his own business. This cold exterior hides a lively sensitivity and a heart eager for passion. Quite sensitive and sometimes vulnerable to emotional urges, Georgie would rather be safe than sorry. He tends to avoid casual dating and meaningless love affairs because they may destabilize him. As in every other endeavor, any emotional enterprise he embarks upon will be for the long term, after careful forethought and deliberation. He prizes deep feelings and the intense passion they rouse. Once he finds a kindred spirit, he will have to learn how to express his feelings and release long PENT upurges. It is important for him to succeed, because if his emotions are deprived of the energy to obtain a release, his personality will become mired in a bog of unconscious repressed desires and frustrated yearnings. The inability to assert the aspirations of his heart would be reflected by a type of behavior, which would bring on his total isolation and separation from others. Georgie Gust wants to wield power and enjoy social prestige. He feels quite at home in the modern world others find frightening. He derives great rewards from every source of pleasure or creation, physical, artistic, or emotional. He has a penchant for speculation, modesty, analytical mind, need for security, strict logic, inhibition, attention to details, application, perfectionism, methodical mind, worry and anxiety foresight, nervousness, loyalty. Georgie has a reserved, serious personality and a chilly, modest demeanor. Because of his keen intelligence, he is very much at ease with any task or research that requires long-term discipline and meticulousness. However, he feels uncomfortable in most social settings because they draw too heavily on his emotional energy. As a result, even though he may excel in his field, he will prefer a behind-the-scenes role to one in which he might be forced to be on display. Secretive and relatively inhibited in the expression of his feelings, he is nevertheless a faithful partner in love. Georgie Gust has a fiery, impulsive, confrontational personality. He will readily accept challenges and try to overcome obstacles no matter whether he wins or loses. He must prepare himself by finding a source of true self-confidence in order to enter the fray, be it social or existential, as fit as possible for his symbolic victory. He must never forget that he is the main instigator of the conflicts in which he is embroiled and that he must respect his adversaries if he wishes to respect himself. Talents and Abilities As an employee, Georgie needs to feel like a free agent. He is quite independent and will only occasionally work with a team, on a specific task. He is especially attracted to unconventional work environments where innovative techniques and structures are the norm. His penchant for examining the mysterious, hidden side of human relations and things in general may seem enigmatic and twisted to some. Psychologically, he is shrewd and clever, but he does not always try to be diplomatic in his relations with others. Georgie is sometimes driven by a collector's urge to gather things together, sort them out, arrange them, and organize them into coherent wholes. In the career where he chooses to apply his methods, he will become a technician and specialist. He makes use of the same sort of intelligence to communicate and sort information, ambitions and motivations. 
He cannot conceive of a career that does not involve diversity and motion. He is full of humor and wit, gifted for communication and trade. His insatiable curiosity may induce him to pursue several goals simultaneously. He has an appetite for learning new things every day, and would be uncomfortable in a static or monotonous occupation. His ability to adapt and his learning skills would certainly be his best personal resources for career development. However, his carelessness and nonchalance may play a few tricks on him. The words that are his keys to success, application, tenacity, knowledge, construction, determination, leadership. Georgie Gus strives to be greater and to live intensely. His creative capacities may be expressed by fathering children or by any other form of personal accomplishment. He will have to be dynamic and enterprising in his professional activity. Whatever field he chooses, he must not hesitate to put his best foot forward and make a show of personal initiative and drive. The fear of committing himself totally, individually and emotionally, could be detrimental to his social success. On the other hand, excessive self-assurance, haste, or an uncontrollably competitive spirit could be a source of momentary difficulties. Moderation in all things. In the career world, Georgie will exhibit a bold and daring character. His lively imagination, enthusiasm, and energy give him all the qualities necessary to become a leader of men. However, his taste for risk and bravado could be the source of errors of judgment. For this man, the work world must rouse his sustained interest. He has a need to commit himself to it personally, and everything he accomplishes has to bear the seal of his personality. His ideals are fairly high and he is liable to experience some frustration when they are not completely fulfilled. He has certain artistic leanings, and although he may not commit himself to an artistic career, the work he does produce will certainly display his sense of harmony, composition, and good taste. In his quest for a rewarding career, Georgie is under strains that may hinder his efforts or judgment. His tendency to be hesitant and vague may cause certain problems in his professional life. It would be a good idea if he set up a fairly rigid system for budgeting his energies. He should also draw a strict distinction between his personal expression and his social behavior. Career Keywords Georgie should be able to succeed in fitting into society using his perseverance to achieve his goals and his ability to get straight to the point. His intellectual abilities, which enable him to untangle complex situations or phenomena, his ability to combine a variety of ideas to produce a new synthetic vision of structures, his determination to delve into a subject, and his resistance to pressure are excellent advantages that will facilitate his search for a rewarding career. However, his pessimism, defiance, and occasionally excessive severity may trip him up. Instinctive motivations, withdrawal, isolation, concentration, desire to climb, pronounced narcissism, independence, self-assertiveness, restraint, control, discipline, excellence, primary psychological functions, thinking, abstraction, meditation, edification, displaying, assertion of domination, perceiving, identifying, establishing, justifying, career activities and resources, studying, 
counting, analyzing, conserving, stabilizing, establishing, controlling, banning, administrating, governing, creating, leading, shining, evaluating, performing, guiding, controlling, counting, filing, analyzing, measuring, refining, grasping, checking, regulating, fabricating, providing care, symbolic tools and elements, earth, stones, insects, skins and leather, abstract things, society, his own body, valuable artistic objects, society, culture, health, animals, small objects, manufactured goods, Relations with others, he may in time experiment with a dual form of companionship, marriage or intimate relationship, which symbolizes two aspects of his psyche. He likes to work in conjunction with other people. They may contribute financial help in some circumstances. With a tendency to underachieve, Georgie tries to protect himself from setbacks in both his professional life and his relationships. He tends to need serenity and security to achieve happiness. His home and children will be very important aspects of his life. Material assets and resources. He prefers to work under supervision or as part of a group. He is especially interested in matters of form, artistic, legal, etc. Georgie will assert his social position by work that is financially productive. He has a fairly complex relationship with money and material wealth. He is by turns greedy and detached. His ambivalent and sometimes destructive attitude is relatively hard for those close to him to understand. One way or another, life will lead him to reconsider his sense of values and the way he manages his financial resources. At that point, he will have to become more aware of his relationship with money. He will have to learn to smooth the peaks out of his appetite for the material world that alternates with an aversion to it. Georgie's hidden psychic energies may burst forth from his unconscious in a sudden flood. They will result in immediate and positive action. He feels an affinity for profound knowledge or spiritual questions. Georgie's personal ambition could fuel a business or corporation that recognizes his qualities. In this case, he truly has the ability to increase the economic or socio-cultural wealth and standing of the corporation. A gifted manager, predestined for executive functions, he is an expert investor for a business's human resources as well as its capital assets. Although some of his associates may resent his high opinion of himself, he has a gift for resolving the personal dislikes and frictions that keep a group from functioning smoothly. He knows how to unify and motivate people. Privately, he is almost excessively proud of his corporate position, and he may tend, somewhat unfairly, to believe he is personally responsible for certain corporate successes. The fact that he feels almost indispensable to the other members of the group is his weak point, because it may rouse jealousy and hostility, emotions and creativity. Feelings of anxiety sometimes restrain his potential for creative and emotional expression. His demeanor is sober and impressive. It may be difficult for him to relate to children. He will fulfill his creative potential by writing or in daily life. A creature of feelings and emotions, Georgie sometimes has doubts about himself and his true nature. To compensate for this uncertainty, and to feel alive, he needs to express himself and project onto other people.
He is compelled to leave the mark of his unique identity upon the world, an identity he discovers at the same time as it springs out from his inner depths. As a result of this rather egocentric spontaneity, he is not always conscious of the impact of his words and deeds on others. He sometimes unconsciously generates power struggles and tensions in the people around him. The upshot of these psychological considerations is that expression, creation, biological or artistic, and love, as a projection of the self unto the love object, are the primary manifestations of his vital forces. These characteristics may take on any number of forms and be applied to such diverse activities as teaching, art, communication, and gambling and speculation. It is easy for Georgie to externalize and express himself. He enjoys speaking in public, and takes pleasure in playing with words and manipulating concepts. Because his artistic expression is strongly influenced by his feelings, he could develop some literary talent. However, in other fields of expression, he will have to guard against his lack of objectivity and make an effort to structure his ideas more solidly. Cultural and intellectual pursuits. His subtle intelligence incites him to probe the hidden, the complex, the enigmatic, etc. Thinking and intellectual work have a very important place in his life. He is curious and might have the opportunity to travel a lot. Georgie's daily life and schedule are rarely smooth and routine. His relationship with his environment is eventful, characterized by eruptions and sudden departures. His youth and intellectual development were probably marked by a special situation. Perhaps an unstable home life and a series of changes forced him to quit school. If he did, he probably pursued his studies independently, and is self-taught. Although he has developed highly original and individual opinions, he also tends to change them rapidly, adjusting them to shifting socio-cultural trends, political and economic fads, etc. His mental and intellectual abilities lend themselves to practical, tangible accomplishments. He sometimes needs to compare his social status to his philosophical principles and express his findings. Home and hearth. Religious or philosophical concepts are important as an anchor for Georgie's personality. He might make his home abroad. He will sometimes feel a need to live with his friends to restore his energies. Despite the ups and downs common to anyone's family life, Georgie probably was lucky enough to grow up in a fairly warm and harmonious home environment. His individual presence was an element in the peacefulness of the surroundings, one of the bonds his parents shared. If this was indeed the case, Georgie will try to recreate the same balanced and cordial atmosphere when he fathers his own family. His beloved home will doubtless be one of his centers of interest. He will enjoy entertaining guests, surrounding himself with tasteful furnishings, and elaborating a refined and highly civilized lifestyle. He may even have a certain amount of luck as concerns his dwelling, and find a very pleasant home at a reasonable price. Although, like most people, Georgie would like to establish a solid foundation for his personality and his life, he is still fairly confused about the means to achieve this goal. He has the impression that all his attempts are doomed to fail and that he will never be satisfied by anything really solid. Because his strivings for security are so often disappointed, he continually questions his own idea of what would be good for him. In fact, 
The key for him lies in realizing that his need for security will never be gratified by the stability that reassures most people. Only the truly universal values, like faith and brotherhood, for example, will put his soul at ease and make him feel like a productive member of society. Social activities. In the choice of his friends, Georgie is guided chiefly by his intuition and sensitivity. He tries to enroll his friends' participation in all his creative endeavors, whatever their nature. He is sensitive to the moods of the people around him. He is also receptive to contemporary social trends, the invisible tide of values, needs, tastes, and desires that accompanies social change. This type of intuition would be extremely valuable in such fields as advertising or politics. Georgie is extremely sensitive to injustice and acutely aware of the shortcomings that prevent people from being happy. His vast circle of friends is very important and practically primordial to him, and he especially enjoys associating with women. He and his friends share a certain feeling of mutual brotherhood, and their intellectual exchanges are productive and stimulating. His strong sense of friendship makes him relate to people in an affectionate but fairly impersonal way. Nevertheless, he is always ready to do a favor. Georgie is not spontaneously attracted to cultural events. He is fairly conservative, and is most comfortable with traditional, orthodox values and lifestyles. The new ideas agitating artistic and intellectual circles seem silly and futile to him. He is fairly pessimistic by nature and unable to take idealists and utopian thinkers seriously, because he judges people according to their accomplishments. If he decided to become a creator or inventor of new forms, he would do so only in isolation, as a solitary seeker. He is quite aware of matters of hierarchy and rank, and it is difficult for him to relax and be open with friends or associates. As a result, his circle of friends is fairly small. He tends to choose people of experience who have acquired some wisdom from age. When Georgie speaks out in a group, he does so only as a recognized consultant or specialist, on the strength of his independent position. If Georgie really wants to improve and transform himself, the first step is to become aware of the weaknesses that may be holding him back and preventing his evolution. His coolness and distance. His lack of consideration for others. His rigidity. His need for total control. His fear of his emotions. Georgie Gust sometimes senses a conflict between his desire for social and professional success and his need for a stable, secure domestic life. He is deeply committed to both ideas, and does not always succeed in reconciling their schedules and demands on him. Sometimes it feels as though he will never be able to find a balance. However, no job promotion will really satisfy him if he has neglected his most intimate needs and desires. Although it sometimes seems easier to him to climb the rungs of the career ladder out there in the real world, if he merely sacrifices his domestic life, he is only trying to fool himself. He should accept the fact that his domestic life is the true basis and foundation of his development. All his career endeavors and success will be even more rewarding if they are supported by a safe, 
warm personal life. He is fairly independent and individualistic, so it is easy for him to detach himself from prevailing intellectual trends and pursue his activities independently. He may tend to be too self-centered. However, he is likely to encounter situations in life that require he adapt to new and unfamiliar circumstances by changing his system of values. If he clings to a narrow vision of the truth, certain relationship experiences may shatter it, leaving Georgie with a feeling of loss and disorientation until he recovers. The best cure would be putting his determination into changing his life and concentrating on new goals. Georgie has a pretty gloomy opinion of himself. Until he frees himself from this state of mind, nothing in his life will bring him full satisfaction. To initiate a change in his negative self-image, to trust himself better and gain self-assurance, the first thing he must do is learn to say no. Once he is capable of saying no to others, he can say yes to life. He must develop his awareness of all the things he loves and feels positive about, as well as all the changes he hopes to make in order to enjoy life more. This is the foundation that will support him, the inexhaustible source and center of the transformation of his personality. Infantile anxieties, which arose in childhood when he was helpless, may be obstacles to Georgie's evolution. Sometimes they actually prevent him from daring to confront challenges he would be altogether capable of assuming now. One of the reasons he yields to these childhood fears so readily is that they procure a feeling so familiar to him that, although it is negative, it is a reassuring part of his identity. However, the more often he reinforces this complex by yielding to that feeling, the more unaware he becomes of his true emotional state. The irrational childhood fears have also reinforced his pessimistic tendencies. It is difficult for him to believe in the sunny side of life because of the pernicious little voice inside him reminding him he really doesn't deserve all this goodness. This side of him undermines his vitality and forces him to compensate or flee from reality. In doing so, he limits his power to bring about a positive change in himself or his life. It's a vicious cycle, and to free himself, the first step for him is to free himself from the fears that prevent him from taking full advantage of life. He can succeed if he arranges a relaxed, positive environment for himself, establishes sincere relations with one or two special people, and, if possible, finds a setting, perhaps a yoga class, in which he can practice relaxation exercises. The main goal for Georgie, in order to give purpose and meaning to his life, is to manage to be more practical. He must strive to implement his ideals in his daily life, in his relations with the people and objects he encounters every day. He should also try to introduce the abstractions and generalizations that make up his personal philosophy into down-to-earth realities. Thank you to those who have been thinking of me and asking how I have been through different online social networks. My overall health has been in a state of decline. But thank you to those who have shown concern. I am doing all I can, my best, and taking all the proper medical treatments and recommendations seriously. There is not much else I can do. Intermission, to my wife.
I have been sleeping, but only for an hour or two at a time every now and then with so many vivid nightmares and just the stinking depression which sometimes turns into anger. I am still waiting for the review from Dr. K who may not get to it before I see him again on Tuesday as you know. And though I lose so many friends, I mean real friends, at least I thought they were or at least played some small but important role in my life years ago. I like to hold on to those moments like in the beginning of Ali biography with the friends in the Eiffel Tower chapter. It is hard when I can feel my own death dawn on me. I haven't the abilities to do much work, if any, and even the television hurts my eyes. I just sit here in a sort of existential despair in a way. Anyway, even writing this message takes so much out of me, I can't tell you. I will undoubtedly have 12 years clean and sober in a few days and my birthday on the 17th. Also, my third novel is in Publishers Weekly with the fourth set up so far with two additional definite literary journals. And my podcast, which I was going to record today but I felt acutely ill again when it became time. I noticed I had my most successful day yesterday, the highest stats of all time. The day in the life of an eccentric man, the 312 hour documentary was viewed by over 2,000 people in one single day. On the other hand, speaking of my books, I went ahead and changed the summaries, blurbs, etc. But I actually have not made a sale since the 4th of January 1. Have no idea what is going on unless they are getting the books at physical retailers, which if this is the case, I wouldn't be notified for about 4-6 weeks or sometimes months afterwards. And now my Amazon pages are all messy and screwed up because of this darn brain disease, which makes me not be able to think straight. But hey, if I die tomorrow I know my father would take the books off the market. But I am glad there will always be a few hundred of them floating out there as my legacy. God bless you. I don't think I am winning this battle anymore. I usually rapid cycle, but this has been going on over two months. I am tired of fighting, not to say losing friends and mostly the fans I worked so hard to achieve. Then the Porcelain Utopia blog was shut down, etc. in 2013, after 250 million hits in just two years. Honey, this hurts too badly. Fuck those who unfriended me. My god, I still have 174,000 followers on Twitter and a few thousand on my Facebook fan page and on this personal Facebook there are only about 700 something. Also, my high on Twitter was just over 186,000 so I haven't lost it many since the closing of Porcelain Utopia. The URL, by the way, goes null any day. I abandoned it. Though I could have sold it. It was worth so much due to the 25 million hits per day it was getting. Fuck. I hate this. Farewell Facebook. Sometimes. I forget to thank the people who make my life so happy in so many ways. Sometimes, I forget to tell them how much I really do appreciate them for being an important part of my life. Today is just another day, nothing special going on, so thank you, all of you, just for being here for me. Fuck Microsoft Word. It just deleted the two-page blog post I was going to post onto Facebook. Fuck Bill Gates. I'll rewrite it. Photographic memory. Fuck it. 
Farewell, Facebook. I write fueled by hatred, bitterness, anger, and shame. And I forgot my introduction. Regardless, it was something about not giving a fuck. Just without the fucking swearing. No photo memory. No censor. Just pure and evil denials of my fucking self, and of course my family. That never dies. Boo-hoo. Okay. Begin fresh, you little waste. You little piece of shit. Jonathan Harnish. Best-selling bullshitter. There. Lost another lost friend, just for saying thank you though I don't feel well. Offline I go. Rather off Facebook, this account. Thank you to those who do care and stick around. One could just hide feet, and I wish those who leave would just give me a good written lashing before leaving. Enjoy your day everyone. Find me on Twitter where 100,000 or so still have my back. I am sorry I am, again, so negative and hateful. That's just a Jonathan thing. Farewell Facebook my Facebook page, Jonathan Harnish page, www.facebook.com slash jwharnish feeds directly to my main Twitter account. Find me there, on Twitter, if you wish to connect. I am abandoning Facebook due to lack of interest and as my health declines. I post here on Facebook often when wanting to tweet over 140 characters. As for my personal Facebook account, I am pretty much done with it. Too many don't get it or rather, get me, as they say, a lot of my actions and behaviors online and in real life are simply just Jonathan things. No negativity in saying this, but the truth that this is my Facebook page and I will continue to post what I want and as much or as little as I'd like. I have no real life friends, obviously because I am misunderstood, or just not the same person former friends used to remember, just being a little shy and twitchy, in school and such, but also brilliant. A nerd, a hacker, and thus the programmer, best understood better if you've read the classic by Paul Graham. Cheers and farewell, Facebook. It's my turn, and I haven't slept in days nonetheless. I use all my art, even this. This is the written word. It's art. It's mine. I use it for therapy and so it's not just Tom and me, my alter ego, alter, hallucination, spirit guide, and what have you. I am sorry I am so upset. My 39th birthday is soon in 12 years clean and sober, both in just a few days. And maybe that is part of the complications which have caused me to enter an existential crisis of sorts over the past few months. I am tired. I am bitter and I am losing my mind. My heart, to be honest, has temporarily run astray. I need to continue taking care of myself. Thank you to those who continue to stick around, and make sure to give me a good written licking before you decide to leave. Never leave quietly. Burn that bridge, man. If we, if others aren't worth it, then it's like when you've got to drop a deuce. It's like hey, when you've got to go, you've got to go. And maybe this is my illness speaking and still I'll owe you all another apology for misbehaving. Farewell Facebook. As I said, it's just a Jonathan thing, a fucking Jonathan thing. Take me, 
or leave me. And always remember any online shopping you may ever do. Think of me because I hold a patent for the virtual retail interface, which means in layman's terms I invented online shopping, also helping build Amazon back in 1994. In 1991, I was 15 years old. So yes, some smart little schizo, me, created online shopping and has had many accomplishments single-handedly wielded, as I wish for death. Jesus, take me. Oh please God, take me. Farewell Facebook. Let me lose my mind, my body, my spirit, my soul, and my heart. I built this city and now I take it down. I hold only and all regret. Put something like that on my epitaph and cremate my ashes. Make me a victim of massacre, as I write in my debut novel. I'll apologize now. I apologize for my exuberance though I do revel in it. I have always wanted a complicated life and I sure as hell got one. I have lost this. Rather, I have given this back. Farewell Facebook. One year prior, I just wanted to mention that you've probably noticed my status updates have lost their edge. They're no longer dirty vulgar or offensive or too open. I know I missed them and kind of lost faith in my own uncensored personality when people started to unfriend me and judge me for not being as hush, hush as I'm supposed to be in front of my Facebook audience. I feared that people lost sight that I'm a good person and a loving person above all. I'm naturally unfiltered in all aspects of communication, whether it is with an ancient grandma or a young person I barely know. But it started to bother me that my filthy side was all a lot of folks saw. But now it's starting to bother me that I'm like all the other censored Facebook sheep who would never dream of updating the internet about needing new AA batteries to power their vibrator, and only post wholesome things. Please, everyone. Don't forget who I am and what I stand for. I need you all to know how truly open I still am, and though I've really enjoyed not being bombarded with annoying messages from different men, I need you all to still know I haven't changed one bit. And I really do need new batteries for my vibrator. It's starting to take a long time to orgasm because it isn't shaking very hard. Some people in my life too seem to assume what I am feeling, what and who I am or not interested in, who to speak to, who not to talk to, who to accept as a friend, on Facebook or not, and who not to accept as a friend. Surely it has happened to most people at some point and sometimes it's a challenge to control it. As human beings we can naturally be afraid of conflict or afraid to react. In my life, I have had several people make my decisions for me. I will allow them to decide for me what I have to say, what I have to do, who to be friends with, who not to be friends with. All of us have personal issues behind closed doors, and some like you and I often bring our skeletons or the darker and even the more explicit sides of us to the surface, which in my opinion takes courage, honesty, and authenticity. Often such detail is perhaps scary for others to accept. That shouldn't stop anyone not you or me, or anyone, although again it can be hard. You're a mature adult now, and old enough to dictate who you are by not allowing other people to hold you back, put words in your mouth, or shut you up. Dictate your own life, 
whether in real life or online. Ideally we should not allow anybody else to tell us what to post, do, feel, tell, or say, but then we might fall for it again, resulting in our own loss, not theirs. Sure, it's great to help people and care about what others do in their lives, how they live their lives, and who they talk to, and whatnot, and it is great to see people genuinely care which is awesome, but then again, oh please God, wake me. We shouldn't let people suppress us frequently. Independence. It's just a matter of being ourselves, making whatever decisions that reflect our own self, not theirs. Stand tall even if it means to stand alone, highly unlikely, and likely just the opposite. Example, my often outspoken blog, which has now been closed down merely due to its compromise by highly advanced hackers, garnered 26 million hits in its first three months, won 4 billion in its 2-1 fraction slash two-year lifespan. As for my new book series, let's just say it really pushes some uncensored limits, but I used a pseudonym, and I believe for fair enough and healthy reasons with which I myself am comfortable. Nonetheless, through my own therapies I would suppose such a discussion, as this topic of assertiveness would be a top pick for my shrink, and so I found such group dynamics as Facebook seem to rely on a mutual and rather dull understanding of what we post, if you ask me, dull, trivial, shallow, no depth, no dimension, and seem imply a similar opinion regarding the sheep, never dreaming of posting. If we as a group are all on the same page, then terrific. But then when we're not on the same page, the assertive idea as my doc would likely advise speaking up and speaking out even if it means that we lose friends. The saying that, they weren't our true friends to begin with, comes to mind, thus my preference to stand alone, or with the few, than the many as people dictate us with their assumptions, blah. Keep away from people like that. You will know even better who your true friends are and you who stick behind you when shite happens, or skeletons surface. Just think about it, and roll with the flow. Keep being you. P.S. The lyrics to the Duran Duran song we'd sing together in California come to mind. The shadows are on your side as soon as the lights go down. P.P.S. I am no therapist or doctor, just some schizophrenic, touretic, autistic intricate lyrical minded creation, and friend moving ahead the best he can, often missing the mark completely. When we were invincible heart odd the sunrise, why do people love life and hate death? Because life is a beautiful lie and death is a painful truth. Victorian dream the first week at St. Michael's, I had no friends. I quickly became obsessed with the graveyard down on Main Street, past Christ Church, close to Rex Road. I would sneak off bounds and smoke a camel filterless and sometimes a pipe or cigar when I had or needed more time to think about things. While the graveyard gave me hope, the bluff in the upper campus wood was visited for sadder contemplations. It looked over the Atlantic, and I read in some old book that the students in the 1920s and 1930s used to go up there to play with illegal drugs and drink during prohibition. My father who did a lot of work with illegal shit, was a cop. I think he owed a lot of money to some corrupt loan sharks on Mott Street in Little Italy. One day out of the blue, he sent to me a huge check for $150,000.
This depressed me profoundly. I headed up to the bluff midday and wrote to Pap. Dear Dad, why? How? I just received your mail and I don't think I need to tell you how dear you have been to me with your kindest offer I cannot accept for reasons beyond my knowing. Nor, that in your kindness I've placed nearly all the satisfaction in my life. It was the only happiness I proposed to myself, and had set my heart upon it so that it was therefore made my punishment to let me see that, however innocent I thought my affection, it was sometimes falsely guilty, in being greater than allowable for this world. It's no boring comedy that gives me these apprehensions and inclinations. It's the result of a long strife with myself, before my reason could overcome my passion, or bring me to personal resignation to whatsoever is allotted for me. It's now done, I hope, and I have nothing left to persuade you of that which I assure your own judgment will approve in the end. Your reason has often prevailed with no offer, that which you would have done out of kindness to point of honor, and me I would have you do out of wisdom and kindness to yourself. Not that I would disclaim my part in it or lessen my obligation to you. I am your son, as much as I ever was in my fatalistic life. I think more and I shall never be less. I've known you long enough to conclude that you have all the qualities that make an excellent father, and I shall endeavor to deserve that you may be so to me, but would have you do this upon just grounds. I know we're not a very rich family, and such as may conduce most to your quiet and future satisfaction. When I have tried in all ways to happiness, there is no such thing to be found in a mind conformed to one's condition whatsoever it be and not in aiming in anything that is impossible or improbable, all the rest is only vanity and vexation of spirit, there can be no pleasure in a struggling life, and that folly which we condemn in an ambitious man who is ever working for that which is hardly got and more uncertainly kept, is seen in all others' pride, stubbornness of nature that chooses to always go against the tide lit in others, an unfortunate fancy to things that are in themselves innocent until we make them such other by desiring them too much. I should justify myself that it's not lightness in my nature, or any interest that's common to us both, that has written this change in me. To you that knows my heart, and from whom I shall never hide it, and whose friendship is built on common grounds, I have no more to say, I don't impose any opinions upon you. I might defy all that fortune could do, and putting off all in disdain and constraint, with that which only made it necessary, make my life as easy to me as the condition of this world may permit and allow. I may own you as a person that I extremely value and esteem, and for whom I have a particular friendship, and you may consider me after tonight, March 2nd, one that will always be, your faithful Georgie. P.S. Tell Mom not to worry, as if she ever would. There I was, Georgie Gust, a new junior at St. Michael's Academy. A dreadful evening lay ahead, on the dusk of a new revolution of my youthhood. I was depressed with only a fat check in my bank account. And so I had snuck out of my humble dormitory quarters, which smelled of rank football cleat shavings and sweat. I needed out. I headed straight to Main Street, where I sought another answer. I began banging furiously on the huge oak doors of Christ Church. Emerging from my insides was pure and evil denial of the very God who had created me. The banging continued for quite some time.
haunted spirits were overshadowed by the compensating swiftness of my rage attack. I wanted to get inside and see with my own eyes if he was asleep or dead. Why? God? God? Show me yourself. Where are you? Bang bang bang. Nothing. So, I kneeled in front of the doors as if they were my sanctuary. Of course, I had prepared for this. I removed one Valium from my tiny drug mart bottle. One pill, then another, then another, then another, and so on, and I shoved them into my mouth until it was nearly full. I reconsidered everything for a moment, and then added the rest of the bottle. I used my left index finger to maneuver the downers to the back of my throat, and then made a vile gag. I couldn't swallow. So I chewed the pills as they were quickly dissolving with my saliva and swallowed. You're going to kill me? Answer me. Damn it. How could you have shamed me? Why? Then I turned goddamn weak and started crying, the little kid I was, only seventeen. I don't believe you anymore. You've become my own demon. How will it get better? How will it get better? And I sat facing away from the doorway. I was deeply saddened, alone and frustrated. I heard massive thunderbolting over heaven's rooftops. My tears fell with the following downpour of rain. I warmed my chest with my hands. It was nearly winter but there was still no snow on the ground that year. The rain immediately came to a halt. There was a glare now, directly penetrating the center of my eyeballs as I looked up at the street lamp causing this. Then another glare appeared, from higher up. It was a tiny star in the sky. The glare was so painful that I wanted to grab hold of this little star and choke it. I reached inside I soaked brown carpenter coat and removed a tiny revolver I had purchased the day before at the gun shop on Center Street, downtown. I held the gun in front of my face with a stare at the tip of the barrel that pounded my brain. It was a plain gun. I sighed and placed the revolver back inside my pocket. The surrounding area was now completely empty and isolated. The streets, every cobblestone, gave off steam. There was a cabbie fast asleep at the comer of Main and Harp Street with his off-duty sign lit. Soaked with rain, I stood up and started walking back. I heard somebody running after me, but I couldn't give a hot damn. I ignored everything except my conscience. My head was face down. A little girl, wretchedly dressed, around eight years old and nervous, began tugging at my left elbow. I ignored her. She then clung onto me as I walked, but still I gave no response. She was so terrified that her words to me were barely understandable. Mom! 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 She cried. I attempted to scare this fiendish child away by stomping my feet strongly on the street. She grew even more frightened. Sir! Sir! I looked down at the little girl's innocent face. It was pudgy, brown and had scratch marks on the right side and on the chin. The girl ran off to an old man with a long black raincoat down the next block. When I returned to my quarters, I could smell the sleeping breaths lurking, which smelled of the night's large pizza pies and pepperoni flavor from my sweet mates. And Chad Donovan, next door to mine, snored, as usual, 
I could tell his window was open because the cold air from outside made him sound so sickly. I didn't bother drying off. I sat on my bed, made with hospital corners, and aimed the revolver at my right temple. The gun did no good for me at the temple, so I directed the long barrel to the center of my heart, the broken heart, after careful contemplation. I pressed the gun harder and harder into my chest, but I didn't know when to pull the damn trigger. So I stuck the barrel inside my mouth. For fuck's sake, I couldn't make up my simple mind on where to shoot myself. The phone on my night table rang once. Twice. With revolver in mouth, I answered calmly voiced, but with my heart pounding like the cylinders of a log truck coming after me at a hundred miles an hour. Hugh wow? Dial tone. Suddenly, an image floated beside me, kind of like a hallucination. I tried to resist it. It was the innocent face of the little girl whose mother must have been in trouble. I withdrew the gun from my mouth and fell, fully clothed, back on my bed for a natural evening's repose. The Valium would keep me asleep for twenty hours. Nobody ever dies from a Valium overdose. They just sleep. I couldn't close my eyes for a half hour and my window shades peered open a bit. The rain had completely stopped and I could barely see the tiny glaring star that almost ended my life that late, dreadful evening. As I slept, spirits soared and were transformed. Drifting further and further into unconsciousness, I was brought back, way back, to when I was just a dead fetus in my mother's womb. I know this was a valid memory because my mother told me when I was 13 that I was born unconscious. I felt a murky, muddy, soft rubbery sensation around my body. I was curled up and couldn't move. I could hear bubbling, burping, churning, and swimming sounds. I wasn't too clear on what was going on. Christ. I wasn't even born yet. It seemed like I was swimming in a bowl of chocolate gelatin. Then, after a few moments of supreme harmony, it stopped. I'd been convinced later on that I was born with a horn-headed monkey that lived on my shoulder. One Thursday, this thing made its way on across my face. My squinting eyes would manifest qualities of a hellish demon. I'd hop on my right foot, just the right one. Skipping, almost in a pattern fashion. It was like step 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 hop step hop step step step. People question it. I'd just sprained my ankle, or I fell off my bike doing the ghost rider. I'd throw my head back, catatonically. Twist. Smack my stomach. And not because I was hungry or anything. Fight urges to stick my pinky finger on a burning stove. Ridiculous outbursts due to absurd situations I couldn't tolerate. My French teacher at Danville Middle School, Madame B. Ranger, she'd make us do little skits in front of the class, and my heart would pound. I had to run out in panic to the water fountain to catch back my wind. Madame B. Ranger would often speak with me after class to tell me how great my test scores were. Sometimes I couldn't respond to her as the words, just I couldn't get them out. Could've just been some Freudian sexual repression type thing. But she was an old lady, not some Durney, John Taylor worshipping teenage glam rock disco chick like Tracy Harwell, who I was just a freak to anyway. 
I mean this was something wrong. This was something I've never... This was goddamn bizarre. I wasn't completely aware of a nervous symptom until someone called my attention to it. And one weekend, because I no longer believed that my twitching and compulsions and obsessive thoughts were caused by me, my own weakness, but by something remotely supernatural, something beyond me, I woke up one morning and went into the upstairs bathroom in our house and looked in the mirror. I tried to hold as still as I could for a long while, wakening the ghostly spirits inside me, waiting as still as I could until I had to let loose, and then regaining temporary control of my body. Restless, I watched it. I watched my long tongue crawl out of my mouth as if it were a threatening snake. As soon as it pried it up and touched the tip of my nose, I snowballed into a laughing frenzy. The whole time, my parents were naturally concerned. They'd seen me. They finally made me sit on my father's lap on the living room sofa as my mother just stared at me from a distance. The hell was I supposed to do? Before she grabbed the Super 8 movie camera by her side, she just stared with utter awe. How was this for me? My parents analyzing every motion, movement, probably my inner thoughts as well. Why? Why did I put up with this? Twelve years old, and yet like an infant. They took me to a doctor, a neurologist, and I was immediately diagnosed. A unique case of something called Tourette's Disorder, a syndrome. Neuropsychological. I was put on strong and risky drugs, and when they said, drugs, the oppression sunk in. And as others finally gave up on trying to ridicule, anger, and shame me, they all still regarded me as a curiosity. But how odd I really was to them was my own evil horn-headed monster with me. Our secret. My joke on them. My mom was a public drinker. Dad? I didn't know his habits and flaws at the time, but I knew that I was one goddamn handful to both of them. My older brother, Craig thought I was a punk. Ironically Craig with his green hair and several earrings. He never talked to me much. This super pseudo self of others had no clue how alone I was, how ashamed, depressed. I felt like an outcast. I was an outcast. I was a cocoon in hiding. I begged my parents to send me away so I could scope out and broaden things and so I wouldn't become a delinquent. And that's how I ended up at St. Michael's Academy as a postgraduate. Finally, I wrote to my mother. I knew she'd be flat-wasted when she read my letter, but I sent it out anyhow. Mom, sorry I haven't spoken or written in a year, but sometimes the most important things are the hardest to say. Words seem to diminish everything. My journey to life near the city, which would have extremely delighted me, would have incited me to contemplate nature, would have inflamed me with the joy of living, left me cold. The traffic was no rougher, no harsher than the feelings of my soul. The small and tall buildings were not livelier than my blood. My dorm room not more overlaid, and the food not more indigestible than the contents of my imagination. When I arrived, I was awake many nights engaged in multifarious and sometimes devious occupations. I went through struggles and experienced much stimulation from within and without. Mom, 
with sincere hope that the dark clouds which hang over our family will gradually disperse, that I shall be permitted to share the immeasurable love, which I often have not been able to express as I should like, in the hope that you too, mindful of my storm-tossed feelings, will forgive me when my heart must often seem to have gone astray as the burdens of my spirit have stifled it, I beg in your conduct to stay well. I broke nearly all existing ties with the old idle circle of friends back home and nights out and getting nowhere. I got screwed up, Mom. I had what they call a sugar daddy. He was realty rich and would take care of me and do stuff for me. He was a psychiatrist, you know a medical doctor. But he was the biggest druggie. We would snort coke all weekend long. We'd hang out. He'd go to work during the week and we'd hang out at his house or my room at St. Michael's. And he would prescribe drugs for me, like Xanax. My friends used to come over and we'd have Xanax do parties. But I began thinking of you and, well, Dad, and I got sick of it all, and ever since leaving the MD, I sought to rehabilitate and immerse myself in the learned studies taught here and reading for pleasure, Sartre, Dostoevsky to name a couple. I still like traveling off-bounds. Underground. Into Manhattan. The raw youth inside me beneath the Puritan levels of standard motivation. But I didn't know why. Must we always be asking questions? Well, yes, I suppose, but not because of the oppressed society, the people that damned me as a little kid and killed Dad. What is society anyway? Some general gathering of politically correct, socially capable masters of existence? I know now that my past means nothing and the future is unpredictable. My body is finally being cleansed. Keep well. I remain always your loving son, Georgie. I needed to get away from it all. I was quite the unhappy lollygagger. I had packed and prepared to commence my postgraduate studies at St. Michael's Academy in Delvin, Connecticut. The people in the train station back home looked fucking pathetic, sleeping on seats, bored and lonesome, staring out the windows at nothing but tracks, running by and diverging, crossing each other faster and slower. I traveled above the earth, through tunnels, but I was perhaps inspired by the fact that there are times in life which manifest themselves as boundary posts, sort of marking the end of a period, and at the same time pointing in a new and promising direction. When I arrived at St. Michael's, a new world had just opened up before me. The world at first of love that was frenzied with yearning and void of hope. I met with Dean Taylor, Martin Taylor, dear, of the sixth form boys, which included postgraduates. We both agreed I should enroll in the inductive reasoning class, taught as an elective by Miss Heidi Barillo. Taylor also mentioned that he'd recommend me to become a Gold Key Society campus tour guide for potential incoming transfer students. It was a clear New England morning and I was 19, a Gold Key student guide at St. Michael's Academy. I was having a splendid time as I shepherded Mr. and Mrs. Patrick Fitzgerald and their son, Sean from chapel to gymnasium to dormitory. Brightly and articulately, I bubbled praise for my school. I was, in fact, particularly proud of the new arts center. These are beautiful buildings, aren't they? This is our new arts center. 
took six years to build, given to St. Michael's by anonymous alumni. Some twelve million dollars. Then I paused. Hey, I'll bet you'd be interested in this. Pointing up to the wood, we walked up a rocky and narrow pathway past the upper campus area together as Sean's parents bragged about his son like I was some goddamn admissions officer. Then I glided ahead. I waited for Sean and his two parents at the top near the bluff. Isn't the view incredible? I exclaimed. Mrs. Fitzgerald was quite impressed at the beauty of my place. Yes. This is gorgeous. The three of them swept the horizon with awe. The view from the bluff was indeed magnificent. The sloping green hills ran down to the blue water for miles and down to the Atlantic coast. Sailboats, their colorful spinnakers were at full wind as they darted among the whitecaps. Then suddenly, all became absolutely quiet. My youthful face grew less positive and more innocent. My eyes followed the boats for several seconds. What goes on up here, Georgie? Asked Mr. Fitzgerald, strictly curious about my secluded area. This is where I come to cry. Everybody's got to have a place to cry, I answered the truth. Hell, this was a tour of my school. We were now in my territory. Everybody? Asked Sean's mom. Darling, calmed her husband with his hand gently rubbing her shoulder. Well, maybe just me, I confessed. I then thought that maybe this was not a good side trip to have taken. Sean questioned in his anguish, is it that bad here? So I took them back down the wooded pathway as I explained, deep structure regulation. The uniforms may be gone, but the uniformity still abounds. Control is by no means lax. Naturally, there are prohibitions against stealing, cheating, possessing firearms, drugs, alcohol, and inappropriate sexual behavior and compromising the reputation of the school. Kids do it. It's kind of easy to break dorm rules, dining hall, smoking, dipping, bike permits. I have a bike here. It's not a problem. I mean, being a teenager usually centers on dating, cruising, hanging out. But, here, we live with our friends day in and day out. Some garbage can happen, but really at any school like this. Balloon fights, panty raids, scandals, and triumphs. Sean was thunderstruck when I said, triumphs. I hope so, he said. Then he asked, are there any single dorm rooms for the next crop of incoming transfers? I like a lot of privacy. And he smirked to his parents as they looked down at him, his father almost outraged, probably thinking about his days of unauthorized co-ed visiting back during his prep school years. There's not much privacy, especially in the winter months when everyone gets rebellious. Halloween? Sean asked. Halloween? It's kind of fun. We sponsor dances every weekend, a summer and winter ball. The last hurrah, like a prom. Everyone goes all out with limos and things. Sean grew excited. Mom, Dad, I can bring Lauren from Glendale? Glendale? I thought I'd better tell this kid more rules. You can only bring dates to the dances that are students here at St. Michael's. No outsiders, they say, and lots of supervision too. That sucks. Sean whined kicking the dirt beneath his loafers. Sean.
cried Mrs. Fitzgerald. Sean's dad was pissed at his son's attitude, like I gave a hot damn. Watch your mouth, son, or you'll go straight to Brighton military. Sean moaned a short apology. I felt bad for the guy. We approached the steel admissions hall. I sent the parents, who both politely thanked me, up the rounded staircase and told them to speak with Mrs. Lyons. She would set Sean up for the interview. Sean remained outside with me. I had no class until half past eleven. I forgot the guy's name so I asked Sean again. He then reported his alias. Everyone called him Fitzy. So, do you think you'll come here? I asked. I don't know. My parents are really assholes. My grandfather went here, he explained. My grades and SSAT scores weren't so hot. I submitted myself to Fitz. I sort of just came to get away from things. He agreed. That's why I want to go away. My idea, anyway. Just have an attitude when it comes to authority over me. Hot damn. I couldn't tell him how much I was like him. I wanted Sean Fitzy to be my best friend right then and there. But it was too early at this point in time. I said to Sean, but this place is okay. Didn't mean to startle you or your folks by bringing you all up to the bluff. No, it was inspiring, he affirmed. I wanted this kid in SMA and to befriend me. I don't know. It's rough going to the best boarding school, whatever that means. 98% head off to the Ivy League and the rest just sort of sit around. Boring. To tell you the truth, I don't really know where I belong, ya yeah, know? I comfortably convulsed a few absurd theoretic grimaces and neck thrusts. Couldn't help them. I didn't care until Fitzy caught me off guard. I don't mean to, he intruded politely. Are you like, nervous? Your eyes end. I warned him, I have Tourette's syndrome. No big deal. He tried to understand. No. That's cool. Hope you don't mind. Didn't mind if I asked. I just thought you might, yeah. Happens all the time. No big deal. Really, I confessed, keeping my cool. Sean changed the subject immediately, with the aid of some divine intervention, maybe. So, what's the toughest part about St. Michael's? He asked. Holding in all toeretic gestures without my conscious effort, I told Fitzy the truth. Just that you can't really escape. Can't really be alone. Everyone knows who you are and what your story is. Too small a student body. Two to one student to teacher ratio. But, there are some decent females here. Just hard to slip them into the cell for the night, if you know what I mean. And Sean Fitzy contemplated for a good silent one or two minutes, before announcing, Father some kind of diplomat at the UN. I had my second girlfriend at this point. Claudia Nesbitt. She was one beauty and quite mature. Met her off campus at this local dive in Midtown Manhattan the day before Fitzy's campus tour. Sean moved in my room on Halloween Eve. The next day, I took Fitzy out for a midnight run. Claudia said she had to catch up on some chemistry. Fitzy and I had our heads hanging out of the quad side window, right down the hall from our room, room number 214. 
We looked out for SMA security PM patrol trucks. We both wore matching black jogging outfits with hoods. Fitz had cold feet. We better not get caught, he said. An element of danger, that's what makes it so exciting. I explained and pushed him down the stairs. Let's go, I whispered loudly as we both tried to hold in our mischievous hysteria. We escaped campus grounds within seconds and walked and walked, past Reeks Road and onto Durham Avenue. Nobody I knew from school even had any clue where this road led. It went on past Merriam, the next county, and on further four fucking miles past Hartford. In the middle of talking about some of my horrid experiences at SMA, Sean asked about the time a while back when I was thrown into a cold shower with all my clothes on because my dorm mates thought I was a twitching twig. What happened? Gated for a week after they put neat hair remover in my shampoo, I replied. Fitzy chuckled. Insanity. At around midnight, believe me or don't, but there was an old man emaciated and frail, handing out flyers as very few cars stopped at one of the many Durham Avenue red lights. He was holding about 20 of them. Probably hadn't given a single one out. As we approached this old man closer and closer, Fitz and I saw open driver's seat windows closing. Sean was hesitant, but I walked right up to the man and said, What's going on, guy? Fitzy stepped in closer. The man was harmless probably lived somewhere in the low-income housing area in Meridian Gardens. I'm handing out papers, he replied, faceless. The guy looked like he had never even seen a trace of any birth certificate in his life. He looked lost yet full of some kind of longing for hope in whatever the flyers he was handing out were all about. Free? I asked. They're my thoughts. My thoughts are free. Yes, he grunted. I hopped. Let me see? I asked. The frail old man handed Sean a copy, then me. What are they about? I asked clearly. I thought the man was a bit hard of hearing. He must have been nearly a hundred years old, if not over a century. And he explained all he was capable of. This, well underway fourth revolution in psychology I've developed over the years. We listened in more closely. When you look for the sources of all problems and how that just gets you all confused when you think you must always be right and how, if you think about that, we're all still infants until we've reintegrated psychology and spirituality together and, just take a look. We walked on to avoid contagiousness and Sean thanked the old man. I yelled back about ten feet, way to go, sir. And the man waited for the next red light at the intersection. We passed Meridian Gardens. All sorts of crazy nuts were out. This was something I had never seen before. It was, perhaps the farthest I'd traveled on Durham Avenue since I don't know when. Suddenly, some lunatic lady ran across the street as a man's voice was shouting at her from the entrance to the gardens, You'll pay for this, bitch. And she startled us, causing Fitz and me to trip and fall over her steps. I yelled at her impulsively, I. Fucking shit. Pissant. Pathetic. I grew frustrated. Everybody knows what it means to keep to his or her right and when we meet, we step out of each other's way. Sean pulled me up off the street, goddamn hole in my sweatpants.
Yeah. That fucking lunatic just forges straight ahead, without even noticing we're here, taking it for granted that we will jump out of her way and let her blow by. I'm willing to yield to her, but why should she take it for granted and consider it my job? Pisses me off. The two of us continued on our midnight run. Sean remembered something. Hey Georgie, Chad Donovan, next door, told me, 2.30 or out, cause you need the room, right? We came to a halt. Yeah, what chemistry is Claudia working on anyway? She should be out here too. Probably at Corner Deli or Gas and Grill, crying in her wine glass, cause she couldn't find me. Claudia appeared out of nowhere, the stunning brunette she was. Hi. I'm already here. She said, scaring the hell out of me. Jesus. I called with a bit of confusion, wondering how in the hell she found me past Meridian Gardens. Just because Carrie dumped you, she told me. You two were retarded together, at least she was. What are you talking about? I asked Claudia, confused. She had obviously been following us for a while. I just got here when that lady knocked you two over, and I heard what you said. I interrupted. Oh come on. Still pretty vulnerable on the subject. I paused. You've never, ya yeah, know, popped the cherry with anyone? Me? I'll be your first? I asked. Fitzy looked like he was going leave any second, sort of embarrassed, I supposed. Georgie. Claudia exclaimed. Fitzy, walking away, called out, I'm off. Night. Thanks, Fitzel, I called to him. And he went back to St. Michael's to stay in Chad's room. I'm Catholic, Georgie, Claudia confessed. Live by the laws. I let a camel filterless. So what? Claudia replied, so, I'll bet you can't quit smoking. For a week. You'll get gated. Give me an honest clean week and I'll pay for your next sixer, non-alcoholic. I hopped. Screw you. We were standing still. Claudia replied, that's not part of the deal. I really wanted to know, so I asked Claudia, do you really believe in God? What? You heard me. Wait a minute, Claudia replied, confused. My facial tics were now extreme. This was an interesting subject. You said you were Catholic. Just answer the question, or do you have too many thoughts crossing your mind about sex? Yes, Claudia said, yes to sex or yes to God? I asked, with another hop. Claudia was ready to commence battleground territory. I know God exists, she said with affirmation. I had studied the ontological proof for years. I would not lose this small debate now. I hopped. How? I asked, and hopped again. We started walking further on Durham Avenue. She tried to think of the correct wording. If he doesn't exist, then his existence is, logically speaking, impossible. Right, I answered. Wait. Why? And Claudia used her hands, flamboyantly as she defined, by definition, God is omniscient, eternal, and independent, so he can't come into being, or be caused to come into being. Claudia, I suppose, forgot, or didn't know I studied logic independently last term. She was now up for a defeat. 
Okay, I said, if there is not a god, then his existence must be necessary. I hopped. I dogged this subject. I was sure to nail her. What the hell are you talking about? I said to her David Hume quote. It's elementary, my dear. He cannot have come into being, or cease to exist, cause if he did, he would be limited, and by definition God is unlimited, she said with nonchalance. So? I demanded. So, either God's existence is either impossible, or necessary. And this is where I would nail her to the cross with arms stretched out. All right, I said, if God's existence is logically impossible, then the concept of God is self-contradictory. She invaded. But according to the laws of logic, the concept of God is not self-contradictory. Damn, I whispered aloud. Therefore, God's existence is necessary and God does, in fact, she said, exist. I was impressed. Wow! I exclaimed. No. No. No, I said in disbelief. We stopped for a car passing by at the intersection of Durham and King Street. Something to think about, huh? Claudia summed up. Well, I said, after thinking for a bit, just that there's so much evil in the world, we continued walking. Yeah, but God didn't create that, she told me. I wondered. She repeated to me as if I were dumb. Evil, confidently, I attacked. Then how could he have created the universe if he's all-knowing, all-good? El Diablo, Claudia suggested. And I thought about it. The devil. Shit, this chick was smart. A long wait. Then I shouted, Jesus. As a homeless bum approached us both from behind. His face was now visible. A total druggie, schizophrenic, an older variation of Groucho Marx. Hey guys. How we doing? Mademoiselle, jumper, he said. Fuck off, man. I shouted at the bum. Actually, Claudia told him, lying of course, we've got to head on. We have nothing to offer. Just got back from an, um, a funeral. Very depressing. Still a bit distracted. Sorry. Really? I was confused. What? I asked. I'm hungry, she whispered. The homeless guy went on, funeral, huh? Gotcha. You guys got any change? I'm even taking checks tonight. What do you say? My ticks entirely diminished while speaking to the bum. Man, I said, yeah no, we could use a 40. Do you have any change? The bum emptied his pocket full of coins into my hands. Claudia smiled. Thanks, man, I said in return. And the bum continued in single persona. Yeah, no, my uncle, he left a good ten years ago. He used to race Clydesdale horses up in Saratoga. You know, those big Budweiser horses. Yeah, no, those big, huge ones. Well, he was out one day on the farm and this horse. He got startled, and my uncle was caught in the horse's reins and his leg got caught and he, he was dragged to death. We had a lot of weird deaths in the family. They're all gone now. Just me. Really? Clydesdale horses race? I asked sarcastically. Yeah, he told us. 
death can really wipe you out. I know what it's like to lose someone. You're no longer around. Around here at any rate. And if there's nowhere else you'll be, heaven, hell, with the beaming white light, then all that's left are your effects, leavings, traces. My dog died, Claudia told the old bum. Really? Was he old? He asked. She. Seventeen. A small dog, Claudia responded. I jumped in. My brother's dog's almost twenty. A golden retriever. They never live that long. The bum asked Claudia, it was your dog's funeral? Caught in the lie, she hesitated. What? Oh, yeah. I jumped in again to save my girl. Open coffin. And when the funeral director said, she will live in our hearts forever, it's somehow immortalizing the dead dog. I mean the assumption was that everyone listening, the neighborhood friends and family, I didn't take the living in the hearts bit as a transitive relation so that Fluffy would live in the further hearts where everyone there themselves will live on. Imagine, the guy said, she will continue in our minds until we all leave this building when we will all promptly forget her, the bum said. Claudia giggled. At my grandmother's funeral, I went on way back. Another thing I heard was like, as long as people survive, this woman will not be forgotten. Her achievements will live on. The bum corrected me. I'd add that people would live on for a long time. It's probably as close to immortality as a person can get. I told this homeless guy my real thoughts on this whole tale. But some people are disturbed with that. With the thought that life will go on for others, yet, without themselves. It's like they're forgotten and left out. Like permanent survival is not the ultimate goal. Only survival as life goes on. It should never be that it's important to be around somehow. I mean look at me. I sleep on a bench, walk around in the day, and beg. And someday, I'm going to turn cold and a significant life. You too, this innocent man told Claudia and me, leaves its mark on the world. Mine's on the far end of a Brooklyn-bound NR train in the city. It's somehow permanent. All three of us slowly stopped walking. I looked at my watch. It was nearly three. To be completely wiped out goes a long way towards destroying the whole meaning of life, the bum said. I pondered and offered Claudia and the bum a cigarette with a gesture. Claudia shook her head. The bum accepted, ejecting his filthy right hand. A grit? Thanks. The bum was pleased. Yeah, I smoke a lot. It's hard being homeless and have to support such a habit, he confessed. Why? How much do you smoke? Asked Claudia. Three packs, he confessed. Three packs a day? Claudia verified. I shook my head. Beats me. And when I was a kid, like 15, 16, the bum went on explaining as he made a truly wet and disgusting sneeze. Claudia and I backed off a bit. The bum wiped his messy face with his sleeve and continued talking. I used to steal my grandmother's grits and take them to the attic. And now, it's like three, four packs a day. I mean it's hard. It's real hard, but, I mean, I don't care, do what I want. I may live a terrible life but at least I don't have to pay bills to do it. 
Claudia was disgusted by the previous sneeze and started laughing hysterically. The bum walked on speaking only to himself, schizoid. Why do you always give cigarettes to bums? My girl asked me as we stood by a fire pipe with nothing else on our minds. It kills him. We headed back by a yellow cab we called from the payphone at Gas and Grill. The next day, the quaintly dressed in cute, Miss Heidi Barillo was teaching my inductive reasoning class as she wrote on the chalkboard, Tom Stoppard, Matthew Arnold, and the meth of S-I-S-Y-P-H-U-S-K-M-S. I sat in the back row, as usual. The meth of Sisyphus is the key to modern tragedy. Can anyone tell me who Sisyphus was? Miss Barillo asked the small class of eight. This asshole, Fred Dominique who always had to answer everything first while sitting in the front, alone, raised his hand immediately and responded, he rolled a rock up a hill, but it came back down. Miss Burillo nudged him, where? Hell, he swore. Right, the teacher pointed out. I didn't bother raising my hand. Since I was always in the back, I usually chose the right to stand up before my desk to speak. Sick of the subject already, I stood up and asked, why didn't he just quit? Some absurd laughter filled the small room. This isn't an exercise in logic, Georgie. Now how can we apply this to the modern age? Birillo asked. Fred again, well aren't they just saying that we all just sit around and work and work at our little jobs, but don't really get anywhere? Yes, that's right. Barillo agreed. Chuck Bear then spoke up, the hard jock he was, barely fitting on his chair. Well, how does that apply to the play? I mean nobody really works hard at anything. Then my sweet Claudia suggested something. I knew she hadn't even read the text, just some literary criticism in the library. Well obviously the rock set in as far back as Matthew Arnold in a pool of purposeless ducks, or something like that. What bullshit, I thought, so goddamn cute and naive. Good. Good. Well applied after what Stoppard is saying in, Rosencrantz and Gilgenstam are dead. Miss B exalted. Chuck had a keen thought. Well, think of their deaths. First off, Rosencrantz describes the quality of death. Death isn't. And then you have their deaths. Now you're here and then you whack O.L. Fred agreed as I was becoming pissed off thinking about Dad. Yeah, the ultimate negative, he said. Good, Fred, they simply cease to exist so that death is as meaningless as life. Utterly and completely thunderstruck, I stood and shouted at everyone, especially Miss Barillo. That's bullshit, if that's what they're saying, then it's bullshit. Georgie. Miss Barillo blushed. That's no way to talk. I steamed. It's horse shit. Then I stood up, gathering my shit to take off and yelled, Fuck, this play is shit. The teacher couldn't believe my exuberance. Georgie Gust, now sit down. Or calm down. Leaving the room, I demanded, Just fuck off. And I ran outside. Claudia got out of her seat to try and catch up with me. I ran and ran, with drumbeats in my head for a long time, to the bluff, where I collapsed and cried under the radiant sun as the clock tower struck noon. Father, I never apologized for my exuberance that day. Everything, I believed, 
was completely warranted. That night, I picked up the telephone receiver, which was hanging off the hook in the hallway of the quad dormitory. Chad told me some weirdo was on for me. Hello? Oh, hi, Mom. How's Craig? What? What? What do you mean you don't know where he is? Mom, Mom, I can't understand you when you're like that. No, I didn't say you were. I didn't say you were drunk. Okay, Mom, sorry, me? I'm fine, yes, Mom, I knew I'm your only hope. You keep telling me that, fine. Okay, bye. The receiver was slammed back on the hook. As I walked back to my room, I said to myself, out loud, I can't stand this place. I want to get out of here. The next morning, my alarm clock sung mechanically. You are invited to start the day. Wake up, morning glory. Rise and shine, over and over at 7.30 a.m. Claudia was sleeping with me. Damn it, Georgie. Will you shut that thing off? I jumped out of bed, smashed the dock on the floor and jumped on it, then kicked it across the room. It was completely destroyed. Time froze for a moment. Then, I hollered, damn 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 damn. Shit. Some lazy punk inventor thinks I can't get up at the right time. Who would invent such annoying, hopeless garbage? Still half asleep, Claudia suggested we should maybe just get up, dress, eat, and possibly go to class. Before we both get gated. It's not like that, Claudia. We must wake up. We must get dressed. We must go to class. It's imperative. Getting caught up in so many necessities totally distract me from the truth that none of this waste of time is really necessary. Georgie, you're missing morning classes, like every day now. You don't want restriction on your last day. Let's go. Do it for me. Then you know what I'll do? I'll drop out. Quit. Miss Graduation. I really don't give a hot damn. To hell with the measures they put on me here. I've been clean for six months. And now it's classes. And I'm doing good, rather. I'm well. Georgie, I'm trying to help you. You can't quit now. You've got to be more consistent. Consistency, charm, nonchalance, discipline, a system of values, right? I heard through the dean you're getting some big award at graduation. I wasn't supposed to say anything. You can't lose that. Fine. I'll go to class. I'm finishing as it is, okay Claudia? Do it for me. Come on. Miss Pirillo's cool. I'll just be late. I'm on your side. Just remember that. Everyone was drawing pictures in Miss Pirillo's class. I, with a collared shirt and a tie loosely fitted around my neck, cruised down the long hallway and slid in front of the closed door to the classroom. I stumbled in late. A round of applause welcomed me. Then Claudia walked into class as I daydreamed. I did not consciously think. I assumed that everyone else was wearing clothes, that Miss Barillo was facing the class. Everyone was speaking English. Oh, Mr. Gust, long time. You've decided to join us on our last day of inductive reasoning. Well, you missed our Friday early arrival bonus points. She continued, Georgie, 
Claudia. I've asked the class to do something fun today, being our last meeting before the final exam. A cake party? I said. The class laughed. I approached the back seat. Will this break? I fantasized and fell through the chair. Faint laughter. No. Back to reality. I was safely sitting, my eyes, open wide, were making romantic contact with Claudia. The vibration was penetrating and she looked up, as Miss Barillo taught, I've asked everyone to draw a picture. So sketch a picture of soldiers charging down a hill like stampeding buffalo. Hurry up. This is a brief lesson of consciousness and understanding. While the class was indulged in drawing all totally separate pictures, my stare was penetrating Claudia even further. She shrugged her shoulders. I folded my arms, exerting a few toeretic shrugs. You need a pencil, Georgie? Miss Barillo asked me. I stood up and walked to the front of the classroom. I was tick-free. Miss Barillo stood aside. A bit hesitant, allowing me to erase the David Hume causality necessary connection and constant conjunction notes from an earlier lecture. I drew on the board, in large letters, J.P. Sartre, 1905-1980. Classmates showed faces of confusion. From the front of the room, I stared at Claudia and offered a small grin. Excuse me. Miss Birillo, what goes on in consciousness obviously doesn't matter to understanding. There is no method. Okay, we've got buffalo on grass, buffalo in dust, soldiers in dust, soldiers riding buffalo, soldiers in dust, soldiers with buffalo, and lastly we've got the picture of a half-soldier, half-buffalo, all different answers that illustrate the point. Please. I need those bonus points. I'm sorry. I walked back to his seat and fell in front of it. No reaction. I sat down safely. I see you've done your reading, Miss Barillo said. Possibly I may be able to work out your term average with some understanding. Classmates showed faces of awe. I smiled. I winked at Claudia. She showed a half grin, which turned into a warm smile. Miss Barillo asked the class, Well then. Okay. Does everyone understand what Mr. Gust has demonstrated? Yes. Yeah. Whatever. Sounds good to me. I drew a little buffalo dressed as Napoleon. Does that count? Claudia asked Miss Barillo. How do you draw a buffalo? I asked Claudia as I glanced at her absurd sketch. Some laughter. Miss Barillo smiled. Georgie. If you would like to make any further remarks, you're more than welcome to. That is if you don't take away my job. Miss Barillo smiled again and the class laughed a bit more. I stammered, A-A-A-A everyone is hereby excused from this room and invited to chow down in the dining hall. Just save me some meatloaf. The class got ready to leave, but all boys must, of course, take off their hats as it's required in the student handbook on page 63, or 4. The class rushed out, cheering. I walked over to Miss Barillo. I was late again, Miss Barillo, I said. She told me, you've got a long road of opportunity ahead of you, Georgie Gust. Keep at it. Miss Barillo kissed me on the check and left the classroom. As I stepped out the door, I ran off. 
Claudia had been waiting for me, but I didn't notice her. She saw me running down the hallway. Georgie, Georgie. She called. A pause. What are you running for? I came to an abrupt halt, turned around, facing the undaunted Claudia at a far distance. I galloped with nonchalance to the far end of the hallway to Claudia. I was thinking about mayor or governor. This city, we need a better school system. Claudia laughed. All I was thinking about was having lunch at the yard. Some inspiration. You really gave me a lift before. That was quite something. I didn't know you had so much energy inside that noodle of yours. So much. Would you like to join me in the yard? I nodded my head positively. I waved at Claudia, like a prince to his princess, allowing her to lead the way out. Claudia and I had a private picnic on the grass in the graveyard. Eating for me was ritualistic. I took my sandwich and smelled it each time before biting into it, and then smelled it again and chewed with slatternly paste jumps and my elbows often lifted up near ears, the left, then the right elbow. I squinted and twitched my nose, but I was pretty comfortable behaving physically toeretic in front of Claudia. We had lunch together every day from that point on. But, my medication for the Tourette's had been discontinued for a week because things were going so well for me, out of the wild jungle one day, rejoining me in full costume, the horn-headed monkey returned to its residence in me. This time it was going to try and kill me, the son of a bitch. I couldn't rid the forbidden entities of my life. Major downfalls. I took a leap of bad faith, down, to that seemingly inescapable hellish wonderland. I was depressed. A deep, dark, morose, static, stoic state of depression. It was like God had given up with me. But why? It was like God was involved in some kind of angelic accident and was killed or something. My doctor on campus immediately hit me up with a heavy dosage of an antidepressant called Wellbutrin. It would take, if anything, time to kick into my system. The infinite doc was my best friend sometimes, yet, other days my worst enemy. Claudia offered to help me out, but she must have thought I had already saved myself. And I had been telling her how I wanted to do charity work when school ended and how I wanted to help others in some way at some time in the future. Mr. Monkey and my depressed mind couldn't convince Claudia that I was back to square one as far as my health was concerned. Now Claudia wanted me to help save mankind in its entirety. Last day of school and she truly believed my noodle had this capacity to save. Couldn't she see what was happening? But what should I do tomorrow? Rejected by Yale and Cornell, won't join the army. I want to save myself, but also help others. But I can't help others, I said. Why? Nobody thinks their upbringing is significant and relevant. Usually kids get screwed up. I'm doing my job and I'm not even a father. Parents should do better jobs. Parents name their own kids, right? Sure. Georgie Gust. I'm proud of my name and think it's relevant to who I am, I said. Do you know what my first name is? I'm not that screwed up, Claudia. Nope. Well, what is it? Guess. Oh, come on. 
Three guesses. Marigold. Amanda. The hell is this? Marjorie. Claudia's my middle name, she confessed. Are you kidding? Well, Marge, what should I do? And she told me, you see, you have this great capacity, the tolerance to serve. What's the word? Manner for the future. Harmony. I see you as a real giver. The past is long gone. Your father, you're rebelling against authority figures. Yeah, 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 I grudged. I understand completely, she said. Now people respect you. They don't care how you dress, look, but what you can see, say, hear and comprehend. So what should I do? I begged. You should attempt to try to keep your chin up. No more tears, no sweating, and no more hatred. You have the control. But I don't want my body, with all its sufferings and shortcomings, to serve just as a manner for future harmony. If that harmony is only a future one, I'm ready to serve mankind as well as my capacity lets me probably ten times better than all the faculty here, all put together. I'm sure you can. They want, they need, your service and you can offer it. But I don't want to be demanded of service. I really just want to remain absolutely free altogether, even if I don't lift a finger. But. You've got to love these people around you. Who I won't ever see. Who know nothing about me, and in turn will sort of disappear without leaving any traces or memories. Time makes no difference to this. What would be the worst case scenario of this? When the Earth in its turn, changes to a block of ice and flies through space, without any atmosphere, along with an infinite number of other blocks, the same kind. The most ridiculous thing that could ever happen. It's like I've driven God out, in a horrible struggle. It was just he and I and now, it's just me. And now it's my last day. Like all at once. Forget mankind. I realize that I've been left completely out. And I think I'm full of goodness. So, won't all that great surplus of love inside you? All the thankfulness you've tried to use for the beyond, won't you find your place on this earth? With who? No family. No friends. You have me. You must feel like an orphan. So what should I do? I beg you, but I'm not going to be here long, at any rate. No, traces. Like that bum we met in town last night telling us how he left his mark on the world by scratching his first name on a subway car in New York City. You will remain, and after you, your children, and that thought that they will remain, continuing to love one another would take the place of an idea of reunion beyond all this. Claudia pointed to all the gravestones around us. Oh, how could I hasten to love in order to stifle the great grief in my heart? I would be proud of you, but fearful of others. Fearful? Everyone else would tremble for the life and happiness of their supportive friends, family, people. Is that why you go out with me? I'm with you because, one day, and very soon, you'll look at these people around you with a profound gaze, full of understanding, and in their eyes, there would be love and grief. A long pause came between us. I took a look around the surrounding area as I thought to myself. Some parasites of a new species, microscopic beings, had made their appearance, 
taking up their abode in human bodies. But these animals must have been spirits endowed with understanding and will. The people that affected them instantly became raving insane. But never was I more convinced that they were in possession of the truth. Never had they a greater belief in the infallibility of their judgment about anything. Whole villages and towns and cities infected and lost their reason. They all lived in dread and nobody understood one another. Each thought that I alone possessed the truth that could discern good and evil. I read every day. People kill one another under the influence of senseless anger. Georgie, lie back and close your eyes. I followed her instructions. Take a deep breath in, deep, deeper. You're breathing in life. Now, take it a little further in. Now let out. Let out all the tension. Release the tension. She blew out on my face and rubbed my temples. And let all that excess out, even further, meditate. She kissed my cheek. I didn't respond. I was completely relaxed. I dreamed of walking over to a picture of Christ on the Baltic Sea. I stared at it. I picked it up. I've never been able to do without you, I told it. You came to me, stretched out your arms, and said, how could you have forgotten me? I placed the picture away and lay down on the floor with my arms out in pride. A short while later, I was in the same position, with my arms stretched out on the grass. My eyes opened. On the whole, I'm sorry to have lost God. What do you mean? Claudia asked. Just, just daydreams, in our heads, or I should say in our brains, there are nerves, these nerves have fibers, and when these fibers begin to vibrate, you see, when I look at something, as soon as they vibrate, an image is formed. Not immediately, but after a second or so, an impulse is born, no. What am I talking about? Not an impulse, but an object or an action. That's how perception happens. Then comes thought. Right. From September, I said, Miss Barillo and I have fibers, and not because I have a soul, or was created in God's image. What nonsense. I don't know. You're only going through a transformation. I know, but anyway, that's something. What? That I reject God? A thousand apologies. You're a Catholic. But you don't love God either. You don't love Him. That's what you pull with us. You lie. Georgie. I'm sorry. I understand completely what you're going through. Far more than you need to come out of the depression and find happiness, you need to know and to believe that every minute, that somewhere else, there is a place for happiness for everyone. Where? I want to go. What am I missing out on? I pressed. The whole law of human existence consists in that you can, at all times, bow down to something infinitely great. And if human beings came to be deprived of this infinitely great something, they would no longer want to live and would die in despair. Why? The infinite world is as necessary to you and me and everyone. And my friends, your support system? Support system? I question. Your mother, me, the great thought. The eternal infinite thought. The whole of the human race, whoever he or she may be, feels a need to bow down before it.
Even though stupidest person has this need. I wish I could see you understand this, Georgie. I really feel for you, and nobody knows. Does everyone have this thought? They can't do without it. You have to believe. You need to have the faith, the open-heartedness. If there were nothing infinite, we would not be king of the earth, of the universe. Only whom would we love? For whom would you've been going to chapel to sing hymns of gratitude? Life? And life will prevail over your system. And all the happiness you can save will well up in us once more. I'll have to be off, Claudia. Thank you. I had a really nice time. I gathered my things. Just before you're condemned to walk down in the mines, if God is driven away from the earth, we will see him below the earth. If God is nothing, everything is permitted. It will be your task to find meaning in that. If God is nothing, everything is a matter of indifference. Temptation will vanish. I assure you. I walked away with my backpack, hopping away. Like a bunny, I went to Christ Church and probably appeared to be uncomfortable sitting in a pew with my head down. I looked up at the stained glass Christ figure above the altar. I kneeled. Then all was silent. I heard a baby crying from the back of the church. I looked back and saw a poor woman holding an infant in her arms. I looked back at the Christ figure, and then walked back to the woman. I touched the baby and spoke to its mother. She was quite a young woman and the child would be about six weeks old. It was smiling at its mother for the first time in its life, she said. I saw her cross herself all of a sudden with the utmost piety. I asked her why, and she said to me, all the joy that a mother feels when she sees her child smiling for the first time, God feels every time he sees, from up there in heaven. A sinner praying to him from the bottom of his heart. Those are practically the words which that simple woman said to me. She expressed this deep, subtle, and purely religious thought. Those people who know all is well are happy. If they knew that they were happy, then they would be happy. That's the idea, the whole idea. Beyond that, there's nothing. That night, I took a shower and cleansed all the rawness inside me. I was dressed in a bathrobe. My hair was still wet. Taking the occasional nip from my silver Russian antique flask, I pulled out Miss Perillo's final examination from the top drawer of my tiny desk, sat down, and read the directions to myself. Create a logical essay on the premise that existence precedes essence. Furthermore, using your own words, define the concept of God. I began writing tapping my big pen in between each word or so. I wasn't thinking. I had stolen that test from Poobah Marks. I was a crook. A robber. A fiend. A fiend. Through the fault of my own, I zoned out that night, and this live bamboo tree kept chasing me and telling me all kinds of weird shit, and I realized what I had done wrong. My whole life. Wrong. It wasn't any illicit street drugs or phony white lines. I told half the school I was in rehab to cover up the Tourette's. It was me. I had to keep up my own scaffolding. I became so absorbed in my writing and drinking that I began to hallucinate. I saw Mr. Jean-Paul Sartre in my nicking room, smoking a pipe. He walked over to my desk as I shook and J.P. looked over the work I was doing.
Sartre picked up the copy of the final exam. Jean-Paul. I pronounced. He answered me. He spoke, full of life. My hero. No, I am just an illusion. Existence precedes essence. What does that mean? I told him what I had learned. It doesn't mean anything. Actually, essence precedes existence. What something is, its definition, its idea, nature, function, actions, they're all the essence of a thing. We used to have a cat, Phoebe, and this cat around the corner from us once came over and hammered it. I was like 12 years old. Disgusting. So? He remarked. I continued, my point is that I knew for sure that when her kitten was born, it would rip apart furniture, which it did after Phoebe died, bring back dead mice and rats and shit in the kitchen and meow like a mother when we'd have dinner. And I couldn't have been more right. If you're thinking about getting a cat for company, you can if you want, cause you can already predict its characteristics before the thing is even born. That about you? The ghost asked me. Me? Well, I messed up, but at least I know so. Get to Z point, will you? Sartre rushed me. I went on. It goes for everyone. Miss Barillo was saying there's like this big pre-existing platonic cookie cutter that stamps out individual people, like we all exist in God's eyes before we're invented. I was an atheist, Sartre said and vanished. I wrote and wrote, more and more. Note cards became my desk. The next day, after handing in my final in Miss Pirillo's mailbox, I took a cab to the city. I read, the whole way, a French translation Claudia did for me. Less you saw fates, the game is over, the chips are down. And I thought I was just a dead man. Or, that everyone else was dead and in his or her own world, their own dimension of reality, or reality, plain and that I'm invisible to them. Then I had a party at my place to celebrate my coming of age, a graduation party to others. I mingled around at the party. Some lame fruit loop spilled some major poo on my brothel stompers that night at my intense blowout. Claudia was so completely cute. Bagging Z.S., sucking face to the max. Riding the porcelain Honda in between beers and shots. All was good. Claudia was speaking with Pooba Marks. They seemed to be hitting it off pretty well. I observed from a distance. Claudia was acting quite playful with Pooba. I grabbed another drink. Then I saw my girlfriend starting to turn on me. It was Pooba Marks. I confronted Claudia. I kicked everyone out before school authorities busted the place, and I started writing Claudia a letter. It's some proof of my sincerity towards you that I write when I am prepared by drinking to speak truth. I'm living today and yesterday. I was in a complete fascination all day. I feel myself at your mercy. But I'm sorry, for I, at the party, I had a little to drink only. You ticked me off and I was rude to you and you went on provoking and I couldn't stop myself. You looked so beautiful. It made me glad to make you cry. Then I left you, had more drinks. I vowed I would never see you again, but I can't keep that vow. I was spinning. What was I doing? Please don't be angry with me. How could I help it? How can I? You cruel, 
cruel girl. Now that was just like you, to pour poop marks at the party. I can see you now, and hear you. You wicked, witching, malicious, merciless, mischief-loving, torturing, martyrizing, unspeakable to be feared and gone, the nymph you are. When you knew he, Poobah would give a year of his life to touch you, as me. What a world this is. What a sad world. I don't know what it doesn't deserve or what I can do. P.S. My mysterious girl, I forgot one little bit of this letter, but I can't forget it all. My heart is yours. My thoughts, myself, all but my memory. That's mine. Now it's cool, as you say, to give me all that pain and then tell me. Never mind, I won't do it again. How could you? I've enclosed a box filled with a hundred kisses. Tell me if they come safe or if any are lost in any way. Claudia cried reading my letter the next morning. She opened the box, which I put exactly one hundred peaches in. She bit into one for breakfast. She took out some paper and wrote, I was miserable last night. The morning is always restoring. I was reading, being in nothingness until late Saturday night. The phone rang four times. Claudia said she'd explain everything that night at eleven. It was past midnight and she hadn't called. Then I got the call I was waiting for. I knew things weren't going so hot for Claudia and me. I didn't answer the phone all day. The answering machine picked up. You've reached George Gust and the broken-hearted Jubilee. Fitzy's new extension is 1013. If you're so inclined, leave a message for me. B-E-E-E-E-P. Hey Georgie, it's Claudia. It's Friday and it's around, um, five o'clock or so, I think. I'm here. I'm going to be here the next couple hours, so if you get back at the same time, give me a call. I'm sorry I didn't call last night. Um. But you can call me today. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Click. I was wearing a white tank top and a nicotine patch on my shoulder. My hair was wet and I had a towel around my neck. I picked up the portable phone and dialed. Claudia was eating soup. The phone rang once. She picked up. Hello. And I went off. Stream of consciousness. Hi. It's me, good. Collecting my thoughts, but I couldn't do so. You're at a loss for words. I'm at a loss for thoughts. Would you mind if you go first? But you have nothing to say? Okay. Well the truth is that obviously some things have been bothering you about me since the party that's been built up. This is my analysis. Don't take it for anything that it's not worth. But a few things have been building up in your huge capacity for emotions, and now it seems to be coming out that I'm trying to manipulate you to feel guilty when we had that whole communication that night when I said I wanted to get better, and things have been getting better since I'm on the new medication, and I think I scare you. Do I scare you? How can you say you don't know me? Well, I'm a complicated guy. This has happened to me all my life and I'm sick and tired of trying to explain myself. Alright? Since my childhood, I've learned to forget bad times. If you were to break up with me, I wouldn't freak out. I would miss it. Yeah. I have a certain amount of caring in my emotional vocabulary too. It's like, 
Maybe there's that 99% of me that you know, but it's that 1% that really matters. Okay. 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 Later, and I hung up. Claudia became upset. She picked the phone back up and dialed me back, but I had already left the room. I went next door to see Sean Fitzy, that guy I didn't hang around with much anymore. He'd become a big beer drinker and drug user. The radio was on. Sean was drinking a beer and reading an old holler. He looked up at me. Hey, long time, no speako, I told him, broke up with Claudia. Have a beer, he offered. Sean opened his closet to pull out a Mikulov from his hidden cooler. Moderation. Moderation. Like Aristotle, I thought as I drank through the night and talked nothing but chicks and dogs. No help or advice. Sean Fitz was like a busboy at a truck stop diner. Never saw him again. Friends, I had a talk with Claudia and I think I cleared things up. Told her about my visit to the church and said how I think of security and reassurance, instead of opportunity, and that I must seem more afraid of life than death. I won her heart back. If she couldn't put up with me, so ridiculous, then, I thought, screw it I'm worthy of anything I damn want. I initiated myself into what I called the broken hearted jubilee. Thought I was the only member of this made up club, but... Isn't everybody a member, and isn't it not just, but a thought only I dreamt up? Isn't it real for almost all of our population? How many people do you know that are involved in a successful relationship? See what I mean? I gave my memoirs, at this point, to Claudia that very night. I wrote her a note telling her if she could understand just a bit to come over to the quad. Room number 214. I wanted to make love to her. She came over. I hadn't made love with anyone before. And we didn't that night. She was Catholic, so she said. But the thing was, I couldn't make love. I couldn't love. I couldn't be loved. A hug? Meant nothing to me. My mother showed her love to me with a wooden spoon, a shoe, or a belt. My dearest Georgie, what is it that makes you so anxious? Are we not living side by side as peacefully as is possible in this misery? What comes over you? You are at once both the quiet and the confusion of my heart. Imagine my heartbeat when you are in this state. I have read your long memoirs many times with burning cheeks in the hope that some kind of peace, some kind of gaiety, would somewhere show itself. It was surely only the mood of an unfortunate evening and my agitated scrap from the chemistry stuff. I know that tomorrow will bring a confident email from my strong Georgie, who was overcome by exhaustion and terrible torment but for a single midnight hour. My futile striving for an impossibility, for the very moment, i.e., your presence must surely dismay not only me, dearest, but you as well, as each time I dream of the two of us meeting again. But you may be right after all. Once a day I should like to caress you, otherwise I would rather drop everything, otherwise I would not know what to do with myself. And it wouldn't bring you any nearer, but if only it would make you feel a shade calmer and more tranquil and more at ease with living in the philosophical world you live in, designed around a moral and physical set of strongly set and carefully thought out ideals and values, 
I would caress you twice again, in the powerful and supportive hope that your ideals would come to rescue from your unearthly dilemmas. It doesn't matter whether I am in the mood for only one kiss for you. That doesn't matter. What matters is whether by kissing or holding your hand, or walking through the yard twice a day, I could manage to summon, at least to some extent, the energy for everything else that is expected of me. Let me kiss you, dearest, pale, tormented child. She who signs herself below brings to you, not only an object in your room but, as you would wish it, and forever. I was overwhelmed with, well, Malhuros in your memoirs Friday night, and I assume you appeared, rather sad to which, this sounds unkind, would have been rather a consolation. It was horrid leaving you my letter of response and leaving you that evening on the phone, but was practically unavoidable, so there's nothing to regret except what you said had to be done, and I think it was quite clever of me to put myself in your place, on your knees and my feet and that I flatter myself I have thoroughly done. Sunday was a little disappointing, because although my conscience wanted me to go to chapel, I should have had some fun in writing this letter or calling you instead, in the morning, when I had simply slept until the afternoon. Regarding your memoirs, it gave me, in actuality, more delight than anything in the world but yourself could do. Surely I am almost astonished that anyone so far away should have that luxurious power over my senses which I felt and still feel, even when I am not thinking of you. I receive your influence and tender nature stealing upon me. All my thoughts, my unhappiest days and nights, I have found not at all cured me of my love of beauty, but made it so intense that I am miserable that you are not with me right now, or at any time you are not with me, for that matter, or rather breathe in that dull sort of patience that cannot even be called life. I never knew before what such a love you have made me feel was. I did not believe in it. My fancy was, perhaps, afraid of it. It should just burn me up, for now. But if you will fully love me, though there may be some fire, it will not be more that we can bear when moistened and bedewed with pleasures. I have so much of you in my heart that I must turn to become a sort of mentor, if you will, when I see a chance of harm befalling you. I would and will never see anything but pleasure in your eyes love on your lips, and happiness in your steps. I would wish to see you among those amusing ideals in life, suitable to your inclinations instead of ideals, so that our loves might be a delight in the midst of pleasures agreeable enough, rather than a resource from vexations and cares. But, I do doubt much, in the case of the worst, whether I shall be a philosopher, a writer, enough to follow my own lessons, if I saw my resolution give you pain, I could not. Why may I not speak here of your beauty, since without that, I could never have loved you from the start. I cannot conceive any beginning of love as I have for you but beauty. There may be a sort of love, for which without the least sneer at it, I have the highest respect and can admire it in others, but it doesn't have the richness, the bloom, the full form, the enchantment of love after my own heart. So let me speak of your beauty, though to my own endangering, if you could be so cruel to me to try elsewhere its power. You say you are afraid I shall think you do not love me or I do not love you.
In saying this you make me ache the more to be near you. I am at the diligent use of my facilities here, working on finals, studying, etc., and here I must reassure you that I love you more and that I believe you like me for my own sake, and for nothing else I should not be all the time longing for you. Well I was wrong. I need you all the time when I am vexed and uncertain and tired, but more than ever on a night like this when everything is so unearthly and lovely, and I don't at all regret the haphazard, unhappy, lonely life I've led up until now because I don't think that without it I could love you so much. Good night, my sweet angel. I love you more than I could find words to tell you. Your Claudia. The whole world, at least our world, is encompassed within the universe, this universe that we can only imagine as seemingly having no end, and going back in time to the beginning. You know you can trace the speed of light. It's an incredible phenomenon. Since the beginning of man, People have wondered how the darn thing was constructed and they went through stages where at first, all they saw were miniature worlds. Back in the year 1000, men never lived long enough or traveled far enough rarely beyond one town where they lived, so they could only imagine what existed beyond the hills, and it's ironic because the things that existed right in front of them they knew extremely well. Every tree, every villa, every knoll of land. But they could only imagine what existed beyond that, and when you don't know, you fear, ultimately. And they had these concepts of like, beyond the hills or in that dense, primeval forest existed fairies, or sometimes demons that would rush out and destroy them, or fierce, indescribable animals that would tear them apart if they wandered beyond their cloud fields. I mean this is a strange mentality. Yet, this is just a thought, upset by my illness, consumed by my anger of having to make an idol of an ideal I detest. That is, my story in the form of poetic verse. I feel sick again. But I shall recover. I've burned all of my poems in the mad belief that I could refrain from writing things of that same depressing nature. So far, there is no evidence of the contrary. Dearest Claudia, it was good to get your excellent email. Dear Dolly, Cupcakes, Baby Cakes, Lollipop. Don't you think it would be a keen idea to keep all of my memoirs until the ripe age of 50, and then one fine day suddenly publish them all as The Collected Writings of Georgie e. Gust, and leave it at that, in a series of great men in our day. An artist who was truly an artist, a man with no preoccupations at all. That would be phenomenal. I would live a life with you of immeasurable delight and my love for you could well up in us for the best part of a long while. I'm forgetting about my health. Well my boils are going down quite a bit. My nuts and nape of the bowl inside my butt are looking better. Yet, with stimulants, my nerves are not quiet. As I promise to take care of the alcoholism, oral fixations, etc., soon it will be several months, in several months. Since I blow bloody merry chunks, on a better note, I have told you my passion, my eyes have spoken it, my tongue pronounced it, and my pen declared it. Now my heart is full of you, my head raves of you, and here I write to you. For over one year now, I have seen only you, I have admired only you. I deserve only you. I will cover you with love the next time I see you, with caresses 
with ecstasy. I want to gorge you with all the joys of the flesh, so that you faint and die. I want you to be amazed by me, and to confess to yourself that you have never even dreamed of such transports. When you are old, I want you to recall those few hours. I want your dry bones to quiver with joy when you think of them. Carry me off into the blue skies of tender loves. Roll me in dark clouds, trample me with your thunderstorms, as will I, break me in your angry rages, as will I, but love me, my adored lover, my sweet sea. I'm altogether immersed in the happiness I derive from seeing you. Nothing else counts. I have you, little all-precious one, little beloved sea, as much today as the day before yesterday when I could see you, and I'll have you till the day I die. After that, nothing of all that may happen to me really has any importance. Not only am I not sad, I'm even deeply happy and secure. Even the most tender of memories of all your dear expressions, or your little arms cradling my pillow in the morning, aren't painful to me. I feel myself all enfolded and sustained by your love. You have absorbed me. I have a sensation at the present moment as though I was dissolving. Darling, my Claudia Louise Nesbitt, my Lolita, one line in haste to tell you that I love you more today than ever in my life before, that I never see beauty without thinking of you or scent happiness without thinking of you. You have fulfilled all my ambition, realized all my hopes, and made all my dreams come true. You have set a crown of roses on my raw youth and fortified me against the disaster of our days. Your courageous gaiety has inspired me with joy. Your tender faithfulness has been a rock of security and comfort I have felt for you, my sweet Claudia, all kinds of love at once. I have asked much of you and you have never foiled me. You have intensified all colors, tightened all beauty, deepened all delight. I love you more than life my beauty, and my wonder, my sea. Now in the quiet of the evening and the warmth of our bed a drugged and dreamy feeling steals over me and I feel as if I was with you once more. Lying here, I love to think you near me, your arms encompassing me, my head buried in your shoulder, catching the rhythm of you breathing and living for a few exquisite moments as one being. I said I was dreaming, Claudia, but I am so delightfully drunk relishing such heavenly moments with you that I wish it would go on forever, for two days, oh God. I have been asking myself every moment if such happiness is not a dream. It seems to me that what I feel is not of earth. I cannot yet comprehend this cloudless heaven. And now, love, you with the warm heart and loving eyes, whose picture I have just kissed last night, as every night, and whose lips I so often kissed in my dreams, whose love enriches me so bountifully with all pleasant memories of you in New York and sweet anticipations of being together forever, whose encircling arms shield me from so much evil and harm, whose caresses are so dear and so longed for awaken and sleeping, making my heart beat faster, ray skin tremble in my toeretic brain joyed with delight, whose feet I would like to kiss and whose knees I would long to embrace over and over again, as a devotee kisses those of his idol, my Claudia, whose home is in my warm arms, and whose resting place is on the upper center of my belly, who first came to them as a frightened bird but now loves to linger there till long after the clock turns to the next day, my life, 
with your generous womanly soul, my heart's keeper and my true lover, to you whom when my mind is not occupied with your senses, is dead and cold as the dark midnight river when the moon is down. I love you so, that really seems to be it. I've been reading Sartre and sometimes picking my nose in public, that's all. Off I go. I lit a cigarette, puffed once, and then withdrew it from my mouth at once. Ah! These cigarettes. They're awful, and yet I can't give them up. I cough, get this tingling in my throat and have hard time breathing. You know, I'm a coward. I went to the dock, up on Main Street. Yeah? What did he say? Claudia asked, sitting on a stone. This doctor was a klutz. He only gives a half hour to each patient. He laughed at me yesterday. He's like, tobacco s bad for you. Your lungs are affected. But how do I give them up? What's to take their place? I don't drink anymore. That's what's bizarre. He 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 that I don't. Everything's relative. Everything's relative. I pointed out. Give me that cancer stick. Claudia demanded. I was struck. No, I'm not going to be held responsible for killing you. Last time we met, I was the suicidal case, I reminded her. Claudia gently fingered the cigarette from my mouth, held it for a minute, and then put it out on the graveyard soot. I continued with my thoughts. Nonetheless, I've come to speak with you. I decided openness is better between us. What should I say? Just come, I thought. Even if I let one thing slip for a time, I'll get a hold of something else. I can't lose what I have. Claudia pointed at me. I was counting on your temperament, and your temperament above all things. I had great hopes for you. What are you driving at? What am I driving at? I've come to explain myself. I consider it my job, so to speak. I want to make it clear to you I'm not a monster. No, I never thought that, Claudia said. I wanted to tell you at first, that frankly and sincerely, I don't want to deceive you. When I first met you, I felt attracted to you. You might laugh. She didn't. I waited for her to at least grin. You have a right to. I mean I know you didn't like me from the start, I said. Then Claudia winced an overdue giggle. I didn't think that. I thought this young pseudo-intellectual, soon to blossom. I said to her, you may think what you'd like, but I hope to now do all I can to efface that impression and to show you that I'm a man of heart and sincerity. Claudia came across a bit uneasy. Why don't we take a walk, she suggested. I pulled her up and we walked slowly, together. It's scarcely necessary to go over everything in detail, I said. You know I've been a nutcase all my life. I'm willing to embarrass myself one more time. The final insult. I mean, I grew up as an outcast, basically lost my faith in everyone, had self-pity, like my incarnation was busted, a wrong incarnate. The faulty inborn who came here just to screw things up, till I met you, and, but I've grown up and down with this Tourette's disorder. But I find it not a disorder, but a sense of order. I reject time, people, myself, and have all these subtle physical symptoms that are beyond my control. But, I feel, 
I can only tell you what goes on. I grew upset, more and more, worse and worse as I explained myself. What goes on inside? What I'm, what I'm, I've been so frightened, so terribly, so terribly frightened of. Claudia sat me down on a bench, placing her hand on my lap and I cried cries that waxed and waned as it became darker and darker in the park, until the evening shadows of us two were, as traces, the only appearance left. I was crying as to my lost mother, expressing my most private, innermost thoughts. I felt so vulnerable at this time but as I told my story, through an elastic tone of speech, I knew, or felt that it all must come out, to Claudia. By letting the world know, I was beating the horn-headed monkey that took me over, even if it was only two years at a time. Oh God, Claudia, oh my God. How did I do it? Claudia. Oh, Claudia caressed me. What is it, Georgie? It's all right. It's not all right. Just let it all out. Forget where we are. Here. Claudia reached in her purse and pulled out a bottle of water for me. I took it, quivering with shame, and started gulping it down. Slow. Slowly, Claudia hushed. A sip at a time. I coughed up some of the liquid and went on explaining. When I see people, I see people bleeding from the nose, flaming fire from their heads. Gulp. I see signs, billboards, reading, with flashing lights when there are none. My attention disappears. Then comes back. Then goes. It takes me ten minutes to read one page from my philosophy text. I have to read a sentence, then read it over and say it in my head until it sounds just right. I hear a word that sounds interesting to me and it stays in my head sometimes for years. My body becomes numb. I feel all disoriented my feelings, my emotions, my body, brain, mind, and muscles. My inner muscles are in so much pain for all that I've held in. Then I release. Privately. Storm-tossed, and my heart is always pounding, even when I'm in a comfortable situation. Nobody ever knew. But I don't care. I love you. Claudia told me. I shouted back. But I do. She continued, I want to marry you one day and your Tourette's doesn't bother me. It doesn't. I told you that. I think you're cute when you... I hate it. Okay. I shouted. Georgie, I love you. Oh, Georgie. I love you so much, you're beating yourself up, and I want you to know that I see beyond, way beyond what you're talking about, you twitch. I don't care. I don't. You're one angel. You speak so beautifully. You're handsome. You're going to live on and hopefully with me, Claudia said. I cut her off. I have phobias of being around the very people I loved. Daydream delusions, panic attacks. No one ever knew. Feeling like I was going to die. I'd first not know what's going on, blame it on the room temperature or the food I ate or my medication. Nothing. TV shows made me cry. I'd be sensitive to love scenes. People die. My father. Oh, my God. I was becoming hysterical at this point. Claudia, I loved him so much. Mom and Dad tried to have me eight years before I was born, and had trouble.
My mother had trouble getting pregnant, and they wanted a son, and then that dies, and old grade school friends now are dead too, or I found out are married, or have AIDS or HIV, abortions, or sold themselves too far. And all I do is try. I'd throw up. I'd make myself throw up three times a day, just because I always felt nervous, not like an anorexic or bulimic, or whatever you call that. I thought it was the food I ate, or too much caffeine. That's why I'd miss class, drop a meeting, or run out sometimes. It wasn't you. Senseless anxiety in the form of perilous attacks. I've never been regulated. Caffeine for keeping up, PM pills, alcohol, to bring me down, self-medicating vitamins. There were never any drugs. There were never, never any drugs. Claudia, I thought I was going crazy. Gambling occasionally, all for happiness. That's why I'm always taking the taxi off campus. There's these guys in the... Oh, Georgie. I continued, I always wanted to be a hotshot. I've never been content, hallucinations, no short-term memory, paying for psychic readings for reassurance. Tripping out. Freaking out. Nobody knows, and I'm not alone. One out of every 2,000 people has some form of it. Like almost 1% of the world, really. I lifted my head and saw a single teardrop running down Claudia's cheekbone. She held me stronger. I told her what I saw. And you look like, I can see this, but it's not real. It's just me. It's this imp. I have this little horn-headed monkey, like a devil, and I never told anyone this, he's the Tourette's. I paused. Hell, I don't know whether to laugh or cry right now, situations, events, circumstances, the weather, rain, sunshine. It all made me so, I spat and sucked in the next breath of cry, fucked up. I'm sorry, Claudia. Oh, I'm so sorry. The twitching, skipping, hopping, kicking, dancing, grimacing. My doctor? I don't even tell him this stuff. I think of suicide. Knowing I won't do it, but think, what if I just charge across the street and have some cabbie nail me in the face, so violent. And maybe, it's like I'm in this alternate reality that I'm stuck in, but both, everyone else is in mine and I can't separate them. There's never been any cocaine, no crystal methane. It was just an excuse. A poor attempted solution of why I feel so, I can't, I, oh Georgie, you are so courageous. Claudia pouted. Never leave me. I will never leave you. I promise. And she cried. I promise you. The next day, Claudia and I walked around the graveyard. Claudia asked, when did you discover that you were happy? Last week, on Tuesday, no, Wednesday. It was Wednesday. In the night, after lights out. What happened? I don't remember. I was walking in my room. I was alone. I stopped my watch. It was 2.37. Was that a sign the time must stand still? It happens that for a few seconds, never more than five or six at a time, you suddenly feel, in an absolute way, the presence of eternal harmony. It's not anything earthly, 
And I'm not saying it's anything heavenly either, but I say that I couldn't in my earthly form endure it. I had to be transformed physically, or die. It was a clear and indisputable feeling. All at once, I seemed to feel nature in all its fullness and I thought, yes, that it's true. When God created the world, he said at the end of each day of his creation, yes, that's true. That's good. That it's not tenderheartedness, it's only joy. You don't forgive anything because there's nothing to forgive. Nor do you love. There's something better than love. The most terrible thing is that it's all so clear and you feel such immense joy, and if that goes on for more than five seconds, your soul can't stand it. It needs to disappear. Damocles was one of those Greek adventure heroes, like Ulysses, Hercules, and Oedipus, one of these heroes. And in one of his adventures, he comes across a king on a throne, and Damocles looks up at the king and says, what's the honor to sit on the throne? And the king looks down at Damocles and says, listen, kid, you want to sit up on the throne so bad? Well, here, you can sit on this one over here. But, you have to sit on it for one full day, 24 hours. And Damocles is like, no problem. And he's ordering drinks. He's ordering dancing girls. But then he looks up above him and there's this long silver sword hanging suspended over his head and the sword is hanging by a single thread of human hair. Now, the drinks don't taste as good, the dancing girls don't look so good. He can't leave for another 23 hours and 59 minutes. So he stays on the throne for the full day and the sword never falls on him. He enjoyed himself and he left. That was his potential. That was my potential. The moon. It's like waking up to yourself one day and realizing that you're totally lost, and trying to regain the simplicity and reality you once knew. And the daydreams. Just momentary glimpses into my inside, what was really inside me. I thought I was alone. And thoughts that had once crossed my mind, sort of a reminder of my long-term memory, Claudia and I interconnected our dreams once. I was in hers, she in mine, the same dream. Pretty cool stuff. I volunteered my time at Beth Israel Hospital on Union Square in New York City to offer what I could for young kids who already had two strikes on their once-in-a-lifetime at bat for the pity I can see now. Jeez. I suppose everyone's got some kind of misdemeanor that they're forced to live with. And my whole life? I don't think it's evolutionary, but instead circular in nature. And sometimes I just have to sit back and brood over the nature of things. I've been completely rehabilitated, even the cigarettes. Things could be better. But I guess there's a time for everything, even growing up if it's already too late. Postscript dreaming of a ridiculous man, my Tourette's would diminish in about five years, and Emily Jean Catherine Duval would have two kids with me. We named them Thatcher and Frederick, but we call Fred Drifty because he always has his head in my book stacks. That's part of my story, the part I told you, in the form of scattered thoughts. I'm going back to St. Michael's Academy to give a speech on their monthly school wide seminar called Reflections. Perhaps I'll enlighten someone else who's stuck there in seclusion. But this year's class will all get out as I did and hopefully see a more delicately balanced lifestyle around themselves and the people around them.
I'm offering a scholarship to the rowdiest incoming transfer student as well as a copy of my memoirs to the Reading Lounge at SMA. My mother went to AA and has been clean for over a year now. The letters I used to send frightened her. She told me that I always had a 10-grade system. There's that little percentage. Often that's perfect and the rest is just work. But this is great. This train is great. For the past three days, there has not been one ray of sunlight, but I'm okay. The sky is gray, flat, and still. The rain falls without a pause. An absolute silence. All I do is watch the clock and wait for tomorrow. I am now alone for a bit again, and I find it embarrassing to hold conversations in my head without anyone ever knowing anything about them or being able to answer me. Oh Claudia, I should like to erect a memorial to what has happened. What has already been experienced should regain in sentiment the place it lost in action. I told Claudia in a dream state, they must think I'm a madman now. That would be a distinct rise in my social position if it were not that they still regard me as absurd as ever. Very bright. Wealthy. Successful. On Prozac. Seeing a shrink. Typical American dream maker. Drifty is hopelessly alone, like his own goddamn father. My nephew is seven. He already knows about bra sizes. My first girlfriend, in high school, was a sea cop. I never liked coffee. But other people don't make me angry anymore. They are all kind to me now, even while they laugh at me, yes. Even then they are for some reason especially kind to me. I shouldn't have minded laughing with them. Not at myself, of course, but because I love them. If I hadn't felt so sad as I looked at them. I feel sad because they don't know the truth. I know the truth. It's hard to be the only man who knows the truth. But they won't understand. No, they wouldn't understand. And yet in the past I used to be terribly depressed at appearing to be so absurd. No, not appearing to be, but being. After I went to St. Michael's Academy, the more I learned, the more I became conscious of the fact that I was ridiculous. So that for me the years of hard work at Harvard seem in the end to have existed for the sole purpose of demonstrating and proving to me, the more deeply engrossed I became in my studies that I was an utterly absurd person. And as during my studies, so all my life, every year, the same consciousness that I was ridiculous in every way strengthened and intensified in my mind. They always laughed at me, but not one of them knew or suspected that if there were one man on earth who knew better than anyone else that he was ridiculous, that man would be me. And this, I mean the fact that they didn't know it, was the bitterest pill for me to swallow. But there I was myself at fault. I was always so proud that I never wanted to tell anyone. I wouldn't confess that for anything in the world. As Claudia was dying, I offered my last confession. As the years passed, this pride increased in me so that now if I were to confess it to anyone the same night, I would blow my brains out. Eighteen years old, I felt it made no difference whether the world existed or if nothing existed anywhere at all. Nothing existed in my whole lifetime. There was nothing in the past that existed, or in the future. That's why I stopped being angry with others. I'm never lost in a thought.
I never have anything to think about and regardless, nothing even matters to me anyway. I have to go now, but I'm thinking right now. Claudia, you asked me what I'm thinking of. I'm still just dreaming of beautiful people. My mother and I were together in the park once when her rage attacks got worse from the stress at work, the alcohol. I said later that if she didn't stop the violence with me, she would be locked up in an insane asylum. So beautiful. Her, there, first son died during childbirth. My parents didn't cry at the funeral. I know that. I know. Dreams come in strange forms. On the train, this morning, I dozed off. Everyone was happy and content. After my dream, I lost a knack for putting things into words, at least the most necessary and most important words. I longed for life. And what is life, but a dream too? In one day, in one hour, everything could be okay at once. The main thing is to love your neighbor. That's the main thing. Nothing else matters. Once you do that, you'll find out nothing else matters and everything can be okay. It's an old saying, a truth that's been told over and over again, but still finds no place among anyone these days. No one will ever get that. And she faded into blackness all my life. It all had to be renewed. The consciousness of life is higher than life. And the knowledge of happiness is higher than happiness. And that's what we have to fight against. And I'll continue, from now on to fight. If only we all wanted it, everything would be okay. All was good. I guess there's a time for everything. But I will go on, I will go on. The entire scene changes completely. The story continues. What about God? No end. Something altogether different to the preceding a literary look into what's forthcoming. Let me lose my mind. Let me lose myself, and my body, spirit and soul. I've stopped. Is genius crazy? With my uncle lying in his deathbed like a clown, eating chicken with his mouth open and bulging eyes, I wondered if I should be laughing or crying. Then tears rolled down my cheeks when Uncle Eric... Are you referring to Uncle Martin, Ben, from a very long time ago? No, that's Pops, not my uncle. So as for Uncle Eric, he reminded me with a quiet whisper. I'm not going to make it much longer, Ben. He drifted off to sleep as I departed. My experience with these final hours of my uncle's life taught me that sometimes people are better off dead when they are face to face with it. Who would want to live any longer in such a ridiculous state? Smoke break who will be the next big person to die, expire, and pass on? Digging up the damp dirt, parenthetical pet peeve. The past. I'm still here in the psych ward. No, I mean, in my home with the cinder blocks and cement and stuff. With my electronic bracelets and monitors. I haven't been able to escape yet, but they give me day passes and things. But I'm home. I'm still at home, you see. I stand, flinching, and cover the camera lenses, one at a time, until they see nothing but blackness. I sigh, and continue to speak. Parenthetical pet peeve, the bloody psych ward above all things. Yes indeed, I'm still here in the intensive treatment program at MT Shasta, fuck. 
This is what I call home. The bureaucratic intake nurse had given me this sheet, and after all these years I finally look it over and still don't give a damn about it. I have had more than enough time so if you would like to see it for yourself, that's up to you. Let me lose my mind. Let me lose myself, and my body, spirit and soul. I've stopped. Postscript. I think I might actually be crazy, after all. The, my so-called life series has more closure than we do. In other words, Claudia, it's over. It's finally over. I am breaking up with you, again. And again, what about God? Pessimists try to convince you the world sucks. Optimists already know it does and smile anyway. Professional schizophrenia. I stand among you I was born into wealth. I have health care and a college degree. No debt. A home. I have more than enough. I want to live in a world where we all have enough. I am the 1%. I stand with the 99%. Confession of my iniquity I am a troubled man. I am not good. I burn bridges. I can't make my mind up about anything. I can love, but I cannot fall in love. I don't know how to trust. I make more mistakes than I should. I am always sorry, but I never change. I am afraid of letting anyone else in my life too close to me. If you want to come into my life, the door is open. If you want to get out of my life, the door is open. I have just one request. Don't stand in the door and block the traffic. It's impossible to learn to plow by writing books. Sometimes I feel like I don't know what's going on anymore, like I don't care about anything anymore, confused about my feelings, not being able to explain how I feel, except emptiness. I may feel that no one is really there for me, even if they are, that no nobody understands me anymore, and it feels like I have nothing to look forward to. I feel nothing. I'm a compulsive liar. I don't understand why I do it. I make intriguing things up about myself. I can't even tell who I really am anymore. It seems I lie in order to feel better about myself. Maybe once I realize I'm a pretty spectacular person just the way I am, I'll stick with the truth. I also try to show respect, even to people, including myself, who may not deserve it not as a reflection of character but as a reflection of mine, but I miss the mark sometimes out of frustration, questioning why it's always me who tries to be right, feeling that other people are doing the wrong things at times. But at the end of the day, respect is better. It's better not to even lower myself the tiniest bit. I'm better than that. Conversation with self I woke up and set myself the goal of getting out of bed. I achieved it. I set my next goal of getting washed and dressed, and I achieved this too. Next, I successfully went to my first appointment of the day. Am I afraid? I was. At first. Why? Because I know I am dying, and I'm not finished. With what? I don't know. Then why did you let yourself die? I didn't know I had a choice. Did it hurt? Not in a way you will understand. Well, what did it feel like then? It felt like forgetting. Like my life was slowly pouring out of me as I lay there grasping for it with invisible fingers. I watched it fall out of me as if it had never happened. It was that fast, 
the undoing of it all. And, just like that, it was gone. I was undone. I saw you at age 38, my same age, and I understood your own forgetting and how difficult it was to keep a life going when there was no body anymore. I understood my body was going. My arms were numb, my head heavy, my eyelids caked shut. I understood my body was disappearing, and I was afraid for what that meant. I was afraid of who I'd be without my body. And how would my grandchildren know the sound of my voice? And, oh my god, they wouldn't. It felt like forgetting. Letting go of the body is an effortless thing, unless you fight for it, and that's what I did. I fought. I fought to bring my body back. But I was too tired. I gave up fighting when I understood. What did you understand? That you might forget small details, but that you'd carry on my legacy. And that you and your mommy and your sister would know that I loved you and did the best I could. And that maybe I was finished. How can anyone really know, anyway? Did you? Do the best you could? I don't know. Yes. Maybe. No. Why is it so hard to do our best? Because we forget. You can also find Jonathan on Google+, Facebook, and Twitter, which is his preferred social media site. Author Jonathan Harnish has written a semi-fictional and semi-autobiographical best-selling novel, Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, which is available on Amazon and through most major booksellers. He is also a noted, and sometimes controversial, mental health advocate, a fine artist, blogger, podcast host, patent holder, hedge fund manager, musician, and film and TV writer and producer. Google him for more information.